0: Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? I am doing just fine, as you can tell. I'm doing something in the background here for a moment, but um, all is well. All is well. So this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers and. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So, you know, that's what we've been doing on this show for the past five years, you know, challenging people to think, to critically think um, see things from a number of different perceptions, think outside the box. Hell, I don't know too many people who want to be put into a box. And it's just really interesting when you're dealing with other people, how they become very uncomfortable when you have your own thought process and you do not subjugate yourself to what their expectations are or what they demand from you. So regardless, um it's a lot been going on. A whole lot's been going on, you know, we've been talking about the New Deal, a Raw deal, and this is part three and I'm gonna leave it at this. But um, you know, we've been talking about a lot of these programs on different shows throughout the past five years. So there are some things that are being reinforced for some people, and for other people, this is brand new because they're not aware of what's been happening. But um, last week, you know, had a fun show. I was talking about um, the program that I saw on NPR. is is really funny, and it's talking about rent a minority. So um, it's really interesting. But I'm going to bring that up a little bit later. So let me tell you all some of the books that I've bought since January 1st. Um, I read. I read a lot. And, you know, have a few piles of books right here that I'm looking at on my, on my um, table, and I haven't even gotten to those. So we kind of have this little knowledge obsession thing going on right here. But that's okay. So just kind of give you an idea as to what I'm reading or going to be reading. Um, And this one especially, I think this is, you know, next with another couple of books, but Racism Without Races by Eduardo Bonilla Silva. And again, the name of that book is Racism Without Races. The second one, The Origins of Urban Crisis, Black America, I'm sorry, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, um, Race and Inequality, or Detroit. So even though it's specifically talking about Detroit here, this same crisis is happening across this country in major cities, you know, so urban areas which basically are a population of 100,000 or more. And we've talked about how, you know, during Jim Crow and especially during the New Deal, how they were supposed to be tearing down the walls of segregation with the New Deal, but instead it solidified the wall, (laughs) it it, it built a bigger wall, and it separated us even more. So that's why, you know, um, when we're talking about these different things, this is why, you know, I'll bring it back up so that you guys can get a better understanding. If you know anyone that's an urban planner, go do some research, find out. You know, everything that we're telling you about these things is true. Look up, you know, FHA, Federal Housing Authority and Racism, FHA, the New Deal. Also look up white suburbia or you know, and, and see how these white enclaves were built, you know, and how they surround the inner cities. And I've talked about the partitions that you see on the highway and why those are there. It's to cover up the poverty. So um just check that out Thomas Sugrue wrote this book and let's see here. This is the one that I really, really want to read. The racial contract, Charles W. Mills. Again, the racial contract, Charles W. Mills. Now that right there, this is something that I've been talking about, um, since we started the show. And especially when I am, you know, specifically talking about the Tea Party and the Libertarians. And what's happening there, you know, they want a new social contract, okay? So, you know, the media will call this social contract, but it really is a racial contract. And that is why we're seeing some of the issues that we're having out here because they're demanding this. And you have to learn how to read in between the lines. It's extremely important that you all understand that I was trying to remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So basically, you know, with that, with social contract, you know, one thing, and yeah, I get on the cases of progressive liberals, and I talk about their racism, their latent racism, and yeah, I know quite a few of you all don't appreciate it. Oh, well, you know, you'll be all right and put you on somebody's prayer list, but um, basically, with the social contract, the racial contract, um, you know, remember that there is a hierarchy to whiteness. Let's start with that. So, you know, you have these different racial groups and the only reason, and it is a social construct, and the only reason it has value is because people assign it value. We didn't do this. And you have a lot of white people who feel that it's going to take black people to tear down racism. And that's, not true you know white people are going to have to deal with the systemic and institutionalized racism in this country you created it so now you have to deconstruct it and destroy it you know but again with this country in the way that all of this is set up it's never going to destroy itself but anyway going back to the progressive you know liberal whites you know it's it's really interesting because I've had this happen to me on a number of occasions. They want to come in and argue that it's class, that the issue is class and not race. And what I keep trying to convey to them is within the white community, it may be because of class, because of the you know the whiteness hierarchy there. But when it comes to people of color and our issues, it is about race. And the thing is, is that most white people don't have to think about race, they do not have to think about, you know, um, injustice, you know, racial injustice, you know, they don't have to think about the wealth inequality gap to a certain degree. But with us, you know, we've been put behind a eight ball so many times. And so I just, you know, it, it, it it's just, it it boggles for me because they like to argue that point. It's not about race, it's about class. Well, within the white, you know, then circle there, yeah, it is about class because there's that hierarchy there, and we've talked about it. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are on top, and at the bottom, those are generally, you know, um, Irish people and, and Italians, especially from the southern region of Italy. So it's just the whole thing, um, James Baldwin was correct when he said that white people are caught up in a history that they don't know or understand, and that is absolutely correct. But, um, you know, I may address a little bit later about progressive white liberals and their latent racism and, you know, their false dichotomy of trying to convince us that it's about class. But, you know, you have to learn there is a line of demarcation there. And it's just it's really important that, you know, progressive whites go out and learn about these things. You know, there's a history behind all of this. So anyway, the name of this book again is The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. I haven't cracked it open yet, but I am looking forward to that. A new author that someone, you know, told me about, And I'm really looking forward to reading, you know, this woman's book. And the name of the book is On Being Human as Praxis. Again, On Being Human as Praxis. And this is Sylvia Winter. Never read any of her writing. So, you know, probably later on today or later on this week, I'll go and look some of this information up about her and um, share it on my wall. But if I don't get a chance to do that, please go out yourselves and Look her up. You know, um you know, I, it looks like a very interesting book. So I'm looking forward to that. You all know I love Ira katz Nelson and and um his books. So Fear Itself is talking about the New Deal and the origins of our time and it goes into this you know, the racism. And again, you know, when I'm talking about a lot of these issues, it's not only applicable to the black community these issues are definitely applicable to the Latino, Chicano, Mexican communities there, um, the Asian communities, and especially the indigenous communities, the Native Americans. So, you know, again, when we talk about these things, you can apply it to a number of different groups. In some cases, even poor whites, you know, and again, just do some research. This next one... The Cultural Matrix, Understanding Black Youth. And this is by Orlando Patterson. And Ethan, I can't even read that. So Ethan, I think that's Fung or Fong. Sorry about that. If I probably get it all wrong, but I can see Orlando Patterson. I don't have my glasses on right now. But The Cultural Matrix, Understanding Black Youth think it's extremely important that we read that book. I had a lot of fun with the Black Youth Project, those children. No joke, I love them. So, um, guys, you know, I'm trying to learn and trying to understand a little bit better, but not only because of those particularly young people, but, you know, I have great nieces and nephews that I'm trying to understand a little bit better. So, you know, Kimmy's babies. So here, River of Dark Dreams. Again, the title of this book is River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom by Walter Johnson. And when I read this, I'm going to read it in conjunction with the half that, let's see here, it's here somewhere, the half that hasn't been told. Let me change, let's see here, I want to see all items. All right, so I can make sure I get the name of this because we all know I have way, way, way too many books here. All right, so with that particular book, I'm going to read it alongside How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America, Manning Marrable, and let's see here. Where's this other book? Uh, I hate when I do this, but there's so many books it pushes the books that I have bought, you know, back a little bit. But I believe the name of the book is The Half that's been that's never been told. It's in here, guys. My apology. Now I can't find it. But I have it somewhere. I'm looking on my Kindle. But um, you know, just go and look that up. It's talking about capitalism in America and it's talking about the half that's here it is, the half has not Half, oh my goodness, sorry about this, guys. I'm getting tired tongued again. The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. Yay, that's the book there. I've read a little bit about it, a little bit of this book, but I really want to get into that one. And um, I guess I'll stop reading off my book list, but it's, 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 this is great. You, know, you may want to check out Dr. Taylor's book as well. From Black Lives Matter to Liberation. Again, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. This is written by Kiyanga Yamada Taylor, Dr. Taylor. And I met Dr. Taylor at the International Socialist Organization Conference last year. And Dr. Taylor is absolutely outstanding. You may want to check that out, and I'm getting ready to reread one of my favorite books, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. That particular book, you know, that changed my life. That changed my perception on a number of things, and so, you know, it's it's a whole bunch. It's a lot, you know, to take in, but I just wanted to kind of share a little bit of my reading list with you guys, and... um I definitely, I need to finish reading the book um, that's talking specifically about what happened during the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and it's called the protest psychosis. And that is when they started diagnosing more black people as schizophrenic because they couldn't understand why black people were, upset with the system, you know, in this country because, you know, they have everything. You know, if they were back over in Africa, ABCD would be happening. You know, we hear this all the time. And again, it's just absolutely amazing because now with the activists, organizers, and protesters that are out there, basically, you know, they're saying that those particular groups of people are domestic terrorists. But you have, you know, a white man that goes into a black church and kills everyone in sight, but he's not deemed terrorist. You know, he's a domestic terrorist assassin. So that is what's happening there. So anyway, you know, we're going to get into the subject a little bit later. You know, there are a few things that I definitely, definitely want to talk about. And so if you haven't heard about it, They had a Klan rally in Anaheim, California. Isn't that where Disney is? Anyway, the Klan had a rally or a parade or something that they were doing up there, and it turned violent. And so they ended up fighting with some of the protesters that were out there. And as we all know, nothing is going to come from it. They're going to get a slap on the wrist and move on. But, you know, even beyond that, We've been talking about this water crisis. You know, people are specifically focused on Flint, but what I need for you guys to understand is that this is happening all across the country, not just in Flint, Michigan. If you want to see a city that's faring even worse than Flint, Michigan, check out Steubensville, Ohio. Their lead levels are even higher. And what's so interesting about what's happening in Flint is that they're an um, elected emergency manager, you know, the guy that they put in place to take over the government that took the power away from the elected mayor. Basically, you know, he doesn't want to do anything, he doesn't want to fix things. He wants them to stay the same. He doesn't want to switch them back over to Detroit Water. And, you know, but that's what's interesting. His name is Jerry Ambrose. Guys, go out and tweet at him a little bit. You know, I think that's what I'm going to do, um, if not today, sometime this week. You know, I have some questions for Jerry. You know, and so, you know, he was saying that he was going to override the city council's 7-to-1 vote to stop using the Flint River as the water source. And so, guys, seriously, I cannot make this up. You know, and there have been a lot of things happening there, and I am of the mindset that, you know, criminal charges need to be filed against not only that unelected emergency manager, but also the governor of that state, the governor of Michigan, Snyder. So go on, go read some information, go read about this, because what was interesting is the people that were working in state buildings, um, you know, state p- p- jobs um, that were situated in Flint, Michigan, they were bringing in water. How about that? They were trucking water in. So they won't drink it. So my whole thing is is that if they think that water is fine, then they need to switch the white suburban enclave or the, the well, it's not a suburban, it's a part of Flint that's really wealthy. Let's switch them over. Let's see how that works. The governor and the emergency manager, they should be forced to drink it too. And I'm not just talking about a one-time, you know, have a half glass of water. No, I'm talking about all the time. You know, make them bathe and it makes them wash their clothes. And I know some people are like, oh, that's just me. Oh, so it's mean when we try to exact the same type of punishment that they're putting on everyone else. It's, it's ridiculous. And, I mean, have you seen those people water bills? Extremely high. You know, just go and, like I say, check it out. There's a lot that needs to be said about that, but we're not going to get into it today. But I want you to, you know, do a Google search on um, the water crisis in the United States because this is happening everywhere, you know, in Chicago in particular. You know, they tested the water and all kind of hormones and just, you know, all types of different medications. And then they wonder why everybody's getting sick and living at the hospital or at the doctor's office. So, you know, I just wanted to share that and encourage you guys to go out and take a look around. Now, you know, I've been promising myself that I wasn't going to talk about certain things and all of that, you know, do something a little different. But, you know, I really, really don't have a choice. Um, Dilmar, he basically called the, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, he called them, you know, fucking idiots. Seriously, look it up. Look it and... You know, this isn't anything new. You know, um, this was, I'm just sitting here. You know, he's had an issue with the activists and the organizers and the protesters pretty much for, you know, from the beginning. And so um, he's really upset because, you know, some of these activists are challenging, you know, Hillary Clinton. But it's not just Hillary that they're challenging they're challenging, you know, um, Bernie, you know, Donald, and, and and all the other candidates. So it's not as though they're just specifically targeting one particular candidate, but um, he, you know, calls them, you know, fucking idiots. And it's so interesting because, <laughs> you know, for those of you who are not familiar with him, he loves black women, and he dates black women. And I am willing to bet that, um, you know, it's, I'm looking at this language, and to me, some of this language is coded. And, you know, we've been talking about triggered words, coded words, coded, you know, meanings to different things. Um, when you hear someone say, Um, entitlements or welfare queens, you know, most people automatically start thinking black people because if you go back and you look at how Ronald Reagan and, you know, subsequent Republicans and even the ones preceding him, um, preceding Ronald Reagan, you know, they like to point to black people as being welfare queens and and a number of other things, you know, about us being lazy. And it's just interesting, ever since we decided to not work for free, we've been lazy. So um, it's just, it's wild. And, you know, Michelle Alexander just came right on out and called Hillary out when she did that speech. And she was calling, you know, black children super predators and how we had to bring them to heal. And that was what was interesting about the latest protesters that protested Hillary is, you know, they had made a little sign, you know, and they were talking about, you know, her saying, you know, bring these children to heal. And so um, go back. There's a reason why these people are protesting, and there's a reason why we're bringing all of this to the forefront and calling them out on it and making them more accountable. So go back, read, understand. Um, huh. Yeah, is in, you know, Bill Maher said, Are you sure there aren't more racist people like pro slavery Trump supporters who you should be going after? You know, I'm just. <laughs> um, guys you know these are deflections i need for you guys to understand when you hear things like that it's a deflection when you have people coming to you when you're making comments or you post an article talking about the atrocities that are happening to black red yellow and white bodies in this country from state violence you'll you know sometimes because i've gotten it before i've you know, I just started really using my block list in the past few years. But I would be called, um, you know, what? A, a, they'll claim that I'm trying to start some type of race war or, you know, call me, you know, say that I'm putting out hate. And it's so interesting because, you know, we've had some of these people inbox others about what I posted on my wall, and you know, just in case you all didn't know, I have a mother and a father. you know who would have thought that you know, but you're you're <laughs> so instead you're you're complaining to other people in the community about what I post on my wall, and especially you know when I posted an article. And it was talking about the anti-lynching movement and, you know, Ida B. Wells and comparing it to what is happening now with black and brown bodies being shot in the middle of the street like dogs, you know, and basically, you know, the way that many of us are seeing this is that it is a new lynching campaign. Instead of using a rope, they're using bullets. And my posting that in a few places upset some white people, and I was accused of, you know, um, upsetting and and inciting people who have already been marginalized, and, and, and that's what's interesting because with some of these people, and again, these are progressive liberal whites, but again, you know, these are some of the same people that will tell us if we stop talking about racism, it'll go away, How does that work? How does that work? I'm pretty sure some of us, you know, stop talking about traffic tickets, but they haven't gone away. You know, and I know apples and oranges, but, I mean, just the way that they try to come in and deflect the conversation, and especially the condescension when they tell us, well, that we don't understand what racism is, and then they go to define it. And it's just, it's absolutely outrageous. We don't know what racism is, and they do. And, you know, this person doing A, B, or C, well, they're not racist. And it's just, it's crazy, some of the stuff that we have to deal with. And then people want to know why I don't want to talk to folks. There you go. That's one really good example as to why I refuse to have these conversations anymore because, Again, if you really want to know and really want to understand what's happening and how it affects, you know, different communities of color and why we're so upset, you should be willing to go out and do the research yourself. So, again, we have a large archive. I've talked about a lot of different subjects. There are some subjects that I haven't touched yet because, you know, even though I do talk about progressive white liberals, you know, consistently, when I read this book, Racism Without Racist, I'm just telling you guys, you know, you better be ready because I'm really going to start pulling a lot of things out of the closet with that particular book um, In in some of the subjects. You know, I'll even give you a head start. Go and look up, you know, what was happening with the NRA and the decisions that have been made over the past, you know, several decades. How that's tied to racism, you know, uh, it's just a number of things, and and we'll get to it, but it's extremely important. And Bill Maher, he said that Clinton wasn't even talking about black people when she was talking about super pred- predators, and uh, <laughs> and that it was taken out of context. And so it's it's interesting, but um. You have people like Michael Eric Dyson out here stomping for Hillary. And he wrote a piece regarding Hillary, and I have not had the opportunity to read it all the way through. But um, I pretty much kind of know what's happening there and what it says. So, again, if you all want to check out an article in which they kind of dissecting this particular conversation. Uh, It's called Bill Maher Calls Black Lives Matter Activists, You Fucking Idiots, and it's written by Katie Halper. And this is on the Raw Story. So, you know, if you want to check it out, please do. And speaking of Hillary and, you know, what's going on out here, um, I'm really disturbed. And again, you know, for those that, you know, this may be the first time that you're listening to the show, um, I'm not for any of the candidates, none of the Republicans, none of the Democrats. You know, I think they're all horrible, you know, and this right here in particular, and it's not just Hillary, it's Bernie too, and, you know, some others, but they have these families, particularly these mothers, whose children have been killed by, you know, state violence. They have these mothers who are already dealing with an incredible amount of stress and, you know, um, hurt and pain, and they have them out here on the campaign trail. Now, I understand, you know, these these people are making conscious decisions and no one is forcing them. I understand that. I get that. But these people are still mourning and grieving their children. And, you know, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with it. And I don't think it's fair. And I don't think it's fair that these, you know, families are manipulated and exploited in the manner in which I feel that's happening now. You know, it's bad enough you have people like Al Sharpton and jesse jackson manipulating and exploiting these people but now you have these presidential candidates doing it too besides the media the media is even worse but i mean you know i'm really going to have to think on this because you know this is one of the reasons why i don't want to vote for any of them now i'm going to vote and that's another thing. get registered, please, I believe, for Super Tuesday, the registration has been cut off, so for those that will not be able to register for the primaries because they either passed or you know the the registration date has passed, go and get registered for the general election and it's, again, go get registered to vote and the reason why I'm telling you to start now is because they have put up so many roadblocks that, you know, I had a hard time getting registered. And, you know, for many of us now, we can register online. So make sure you look that up as well. You know, your county clerk may have it set up so that you can register to vote online. You have a Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, if you need a resource, you can go to um a number of things. But, yeah, please, go get registered to vote. Because I'm sitting here and I'm watching these candidates, and, you know, at first some of this was funny, and then it stopped being funny. And it stopped being funny a long time ago. Go back and listen to my show, the, you know, prosperity gospel of Donald Trump. And the whole thing, this is not funny anymore because Donald Trump really does have a chance at winning. And I need for you guys to think about that. It's not funny anymore. We need you to go and get registered to vote. And so I know some people, you know, have had these conversations, and they're talking about how some of these candidates are pandering to communities of color. That is correct. This year specifically, the voters of color, your votes you know, definitely will have an impact this year. This is why we're encouraging you all to go and get registered and then not only register, actually go out and vote. To be honest with you, some of these candidates are so desperate that I believe that we can invite them to the family barbecue and send them down the soul train line with a chicken wing in one hand and a can of malt liquor in a second. That is how desperate they are for our votes. And so... This is why, you know, you have these different organizations and groups basically, you know, putting pressure on them, and this needs to be done. I mean, we did not take advantage of that opportunity when Barack Obama was in office. You know, there were some out there. I can't say no one, you know, pressured him. But what I'm saying is, you know, we let eight years go by, but especially those first four years. And um, we can't afford to do that again. And so we need to put pressure on these people. We need to ask the hard questions. We need to make them accountable. But they need to know that we will vote them out. So it's, it's, you know, it's important. And, again, you know, I'm still feeling some kind of way about them taking these moms and these families out to, you know, give stump speeches, you know, as to why. They support candidates A, B, C, or D. I have a real big problem with that. I don't think it's right. And I, you know, what is going to happen when the cameras go away? Are any of these candidates going to keep in touch with these families to encourage them? Are they going to take their calls at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning because, you know, they're they're you know, needing someone to talk to because, you know, maybe something came in the mail or they got some type of weird phone call that scared them or, or they're having an anxiety attack? Will these people still be there? And so that's why I'm saying, you know, we have to start looking at these things And putting it in perspective and calling it out because there's so much wrong happening here, so many problems. And so, again, I'm just, I'm upset about a number of things that's happening with these particular candidates and how these, um, you know, these women in particular, these moms, you know, are being paraded out there you know, for the TV camera. And, um, you know, all right, so when you have public figures, there is a certain amount of privacy that pretty much is gone when you become a public figure. And I don't consider these moms or these families as public figures. But it may get to that point, whereas, you know, they are stated or or defined as public figures. And that right there on its face is extremely dangerous. So um, I'm going to let it go for right now because I really get upset thinking about what's happening here and um, how it's not right on so many levels. But anyway, um, we're going to move on, try to find something a little lighter to talk about. (laughs) Um, If you all aren't aware, uh, Melissa Harris Perry. Now, I've been watching her show since she started it. As a matter of fact, you know, I've been watching Melissa, you know, ever since her and a friend of hers had a blog way back when and that was when her last name was Lacewell, so Melissa Harris, Harris Lacewell. But I've been reading her blogs and, you know, kind of following her trajectory and her career for many, many years. Um, and so what's happening is, you know, she has that show on MSNBC, and it's been preempted for this election and like I said yesterday, this whole election thing is like being strapped in a roller coaster and not being able to get off that roller coaster. You know, you see everybody else getting on and off, but it seems as though you know, you're permanently stuck there. But anyway, you know, she's you know her show has been preempted, and in addition to that, you know, this is a very well educated woman, and you know she has her PhD of political science, and, and she's taught at a number of universities throughout the country. And, you know, I, I was wondering why we had not seen her giving commentary. So anyway, Melissa, she let them have it. She said, I am not your token, your mammy, or your or your um little brown bobblehead. And I just thought that was so apropos because again, you know, with these news shows and these channels and a lot of these, you know, news magazines, um, is just or new sites. Basically, you know, it, it's about money, and it's about appealing to certain demographics. But when, when you know, Melissa Harris Perry, when Doctor Perry, you know, made her demands, I guess they're negotiating it. I'm not sure what's happening there. But she's correct when she says she doesn't, you know, want them to see her as a token, a mammy, or a bobblehead. And what's so unfortunate about that is you got plenty of people out here that are willing to be that token, willing to be top mammy, and willing to be, you know, bobbleheads for the powers that be. And it's unfortunate. And, you know, what I find interesting about it is, again, Last week I posted that NPR piece about, you know, rent a minority. And, you know, one of the bylines is our ethics is your ethics. So go listen to that, and and this is nothing new. And this is a very real problem. You know, you have people and, and organizations and et cetera, et cetera, that are really talking heads, if you will. Well, if we bring one black in or if we bring one Latino in and, you know, maybe have one woman, if she's a black woman, that's even better. You know, it it happens. It happens. And they feel as though their quota has been filled. So, I mean, you know, there are some people who feel that I'm a tad bit harsh. It's not that I'm harsh. It's that I'm being honest. See, and that's the thing. You know, I've had conversations with people, and they basically said, it's not that we're questioning the veracity or the truthfulness of your words. They just don't like my tone, or they don't like the way that I said it. I guess I was supposed to be more nuanced. No, sometimes I don't want to be that. And you'll get a whole line of expletives out of my mouth, and I don't apologize for it. So anyway, um, guys, you know, um, encourage Dr. Perry, encourage her, because I know that this is, you know, this is very hurtful and it's confusing and, you know, just, you know, it's undermining. You know, they spent all that time creating that show, creating that brand, building a following, building an audience. And then for, you know, for them to just kind of push her to the side, push her to the back burner, it's not fair. It's not fair. And especially when you don't see many faces of color on the news to begin with. And what's so interesting is um, you have Yvette Carnell and um, Pascal Robert and, you know, a number of other people out there that have basically, you know, predicted, and, you know, and this is, you know, something that was expected, that with the closing of, you know, Barack Obama's, you know, presidency, that, you know, all the minorities or particular black people that they've hired and that they've elevated to basically translate, you know, our black talk, that as, you know, his, you know, his presidency is closing – they're pushing a lot of people away. You know, so a lot of these, you know, uh, political pundits, a lot of these correspondents that we've gotten used to over the past eight years, if you notice, you're seeing them less and less, and there are fewer of them. So, again, like I tell you guys, you need to pay attention to what's happening out here. And this is why we need our own media. This is why. And so, you know, how. have some, you know, commentary about that, but, you know, I'm just not ready to talk about it right now, especially when I know that there are people out there that take my ideas and run with them. Yeah, I see. But um, it's, it's really interesting. But, you know, um, if you go over to the Very Smart Brothers blog, they're talking about Dr. Perry and talking about why we should care about the way that she's being treated. And, again, this is something that is happening very publicly. And in a lot of cases, this is how, you know, um, some of these situations need to play out. You know, we need to play some of these out publicly. So, um, again, go check it out. But you all should care about this. And you should care about how she's being treated And, you know, again, you know, I've seen some of the responses to this situation. And look at the comments. I tell people go and look at the comments because when you read those comments, you know it's telling. It really is. So, anyway, there's a bunch more stuff that I actually wanted to talk about, but I'm not sure. if um, Sometimes I don't talk about certain things because I feel that the general public isn't really ready to address or broach particular issues. But, um, yes, go and do some research on your own. You know, I definitely want you guys to go and read up about that race versus class, you know, and um, it is, it's, it's, it's horrible, you know, and it's just, this country has failed on that particular subject. And what's interesting is, you know, you have a lot of liberals out here, and especially even with, you know, what's been going on, especially in the past two, three years with these grassroots organizations being more visible, getting more um, attention from the media, And you'll hear, you know, quite a few of progressive liberals saying, well, it's not time yet. This is not the right time. You all should wait. And like I said, I've shut down a number of conversations. Why does it have to get violent? You know, the civil rights movement didn't incite violence. Yes, it did. Did you not see all those dogs attacking black people? Did you not see, you know, white people carrying black bodies and hanging them from trees? And I just find the whole thing, you know, unreal. And we talked a little bit about the Beyonce situation last week. You know, you have these police officers saying that they won't protect her and they're going to boycott her conference until she apologizes for a performance. But yet they protect the Klan yet they protect you know these these you know bikers that you know you all remember that melee that you know happened when all the bikers had a shootout and people were dead all in the parking lot of the mall and they got a slap on the wrist but i'm just i'm just looking at this you want to boycott her because of her performance you know and because you're upset that she played that she paid homage to the Black Panthers. When again as I stated earlier, you're living in a country with a history that you don't know or understand. And you know the Angola 3 were released and um well that's a whole different story right there with the Angola 3, but again, they're political prisoners in this country still and those are totally different conversations. And if I get started on it, I'll never get <laughs> to the topic today, so just go out and you know do some research because you know the liberals in this country, the white liberals, you know they've kind of failed us, and there's too many of them out here playing you know ally fear, and you may wanna look that up too, so again. We're going to get to the subject for those that may want to chime in. The number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you want to speak with me, you know, you have to press 1. Otherwise, you know, I don't know that you want to talk. But, you know, what's interesting with, you know, all the things that I've been talking about Uh, most recently, is when you have people out here gaslighting you. And that's what's happening, you know, with these activists and organizers and, you know, different people out here, you know, including myself. You have folks, you know, gaslighting you. And it does. It causes you to step back and question your own sanity. It's like, you know, (laughs) and uh, I think it'd be so... So many examples, but um, it happens quite often it happens quite often, and again, it's a deflection tactic, and again, it's about people trying to flip the script on you, but yeah, you know this happens quite often, but um, yeah, go and look that up, you know, um some people see it as emotional abuse, and I tend to agree with that, you know because. It causes you to second guess and and question yourself and question you know you know your your thought process you know because you know it is basically people will start to make you feel like you're paranoid or you know oh here you go my favorite mentally unstable and then you have unhinged and you know other things and it's just so funny because. You know, people use that that type of tactic, and when it's used on them, they get so, 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 so very upset. And what's interesting is that, you know, you have a lot of white people that use those tactics with black people. You have black men that use these tactics with black women, and you have white women, I'm sorry, you have black women using that tactic with other black women. So it's just funny to me, you know, um, and basically the people who do the gaslighting of others, you know, again, you know, think you're a damn narcissist, a sociopath at best. And so I'm just looking at it, but again, I want you guys to go out and do some reading on that and to get a better understanding as to what's happening and why, and then why it seems as though you have these people flipping the script. So we actually have a caller. Let's bring them into the conversation. But before I bring them in, Raina was supposed to be here today. Something came up. I spoke to her earlier this morning. She says, hi, everybody. She misses you. So she will be back soon. So for those of you who are not aware, Raina is working on her PhD right now, so she doesn't have as much time as she used to have, but the love is still there. Reach out, say hi. So let's bring the caller into the conversation here. Hello, may I have your name? Let's see here. So I the Hello, can, having you, call can you hear me? I, I can hear you now. So, yes, please, uh, may I have your name?
1: Yeah, this is Jacob from Brooklyn. Hey,
0: Jacob from Brooklyn. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine, thank you. I love your topic, by the way. I love talking about something that's very, like, really, it's impacting the whole world because my firm believe is I feel like racism itself is practiced throughout the whole world. And one of the things people fail to realize is um, every country on the face of this earth practices a form. Of racism, but it's not really called racism. It's called colorism, to be exact. Yes. Because I mean, believe yeah. believe it or not, India, which is part you know, which is you know, Asian, you know, it's like in the other global part of the world. Of course, you know, it's other aspect of um, mm-hmm. most you know, like next to China, so to speak. Um, right, right. A lot of people don't realize India is the most racist country in the world. Most people don't know that. Yeah, they have the a caste um, okay. They have a cast system yep. there. Yes. Exactly. So my point in saying that is um, a lot of black people, when I bring up racism, they, they get tired of it. They're like, why do we have to keep talking about that? Like, what's the point? Like, and what they fail to realize is if you don't, like, because racism is unjust. If you're not trying to fight for justice, then don't complain about anything then. Anything bad that happens right. in the world, then just accept it. Because Racism is a system based on a system that's un- completely unjust. Just because somebody's a shade darker than you, you're gonna treat them horribly. Prime example: Look what happened in Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan right. is one of the like. If you look at what happened in Flint, this was purposely done. Why? Because exactly. these were predominantly people of color. You would not find that in a predominantly white. Area where they're gonna literally poison the people because this is what happened. They literally poisoned the people. They knew what they were doing. You can't come with all this exactly. technology, with all this advanced research, and all these mechanisms in place to stop something horrific like this from happening. That it was an accident. I don't know. I'm not gonna accept that because there's been act- basically what you're saying to me for 300 years. Accidents been happening because that's what happened. This is nothing new under the sun. Right? <laughs> this is another form of 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 white people trying to use their technique to destroy a certain group of people because this has actually been done in Africa. They've actually um poisoned the waters in Africa to to
2: to, mm-hmm. to have
1: a certain group of people get sick. So this is nothing new. And if you notice this right. doesn't happen in predominantly white countries or white towns or white not. areas. It's never happened. And if it did happen, you hear major lawsuits, somebody would go to jail. They would make an example out of that politician. They will make an example Mm -hmm. out of that politician. And my point in saying this is black people have become comfortable in their oppression. That's the problem. Exactly. The, The white... The white supremacists figured something out in the 1950s and 60s. You know what they figured out? Because I watched mm-hmm. that movie Selma, and that's one of my favorite movies. You know why that's you know why that's my favorite movie? In that movie, you saw the fearlessness of young and old coming together and conquering fear, which is death. That's what white people have used against us for centuries which is death. Exactly. They use death as a form of control. Because if you're scared to die, then you're going to accept your condition. I repeat that again. If you're scared exactly. to die, you're going to accept whatever condition they throw at you. In Selma, if you watch that movie, mind you, power, who were telling these people, if you cross that bridge, we can't protect you. You might die. These people still talk. Exactly. We don't care if we die. we rather die That's than right. live under this oppression. We'd rather die yes. than live our life with no dignity. You hear this? They'd rather die than that's live right? their life with no dignity. And that's why I love Selma so much because it showed the fearlessness, the the level of, of not being scared. Because once you're scared, people control you. And you saw people as young as seven, eight years old. People were 80 years old all coming together under one one alliance. And this alliance basically is we're going to die for what we believe in. This is something worth dying for. And that's what white supremacy saw. White supremacy said, oh, my God, these Negroes have come together and united, and they no longer fear the greatest machine that we've created on the face of this earth, which is the fear of death. They no longer fear death. Exactly. How can we control these people? And you know what white supremacy exactly. said? We have to figure out way mm-hmm. to make them comfortable so they don't want to die. We have to figure exactly. out how we're going to do this. And what they did in the 70s and 80s, they started implementing all these beautiful programs. Because on the surface, it seems like, ooh, white daddy likes me. White daddy cares about me. Think about <laughs> it. What is Section 8? Section 8 is a form right. of keeping you comfortable.
3: Food stamps.
1: Um. Medicaid, all these programs are there to keep you comfortable in your oppression and that's what it is because I have friends right now and I'm being honest with you they're 25 mm-hmm. years old with 4 kids and the government literally takes everything for them, they don't have to even they don't have to bust their ass, they don't I had this one lady tell me why should I bust my ass, the benefits I'm getting adds to about $100,000 a year or more and when she showed me the math it. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, you really are getting $100,000 worth of benefits. She showed me because she lives in a four-bedroom apartment, which the government pays 90%. She only has to come up with, like I think, $100, $150 a month for a four-bedroom apartment. And when we went online and did research for this four-bedroom apartment, which was not under Section 8, it would have cost almost $4,000. She's just paying $150. The government paid the vast majority of her bills for her. On top of that, she got food stamps. Her food stamps came with her four kids and herself. Her food stamp came to almost like two thousand and something every month. And then on top of that, she had vouchers for her kids. She had three kids out of the daycare. Each voucher is worth fifteen hundred dollars. You see what I'm trying to do here? I'm doing the math. And you see how in her mind she was like, Wow, I have to make a hundred thousand dollars of salary to get this certain lifestyle but yet the government will give it to me for free. This is what the and you know why the government's doing that because the government saw something in us. The government says if these people, if we get them angry enough and they become uncomfortable, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wake up a monster. And this monster, which is called the black community, could unravel our whole system of white supremacy. Because let me tell you something: what white people figured out, white people know if there's one movement in one country, this movement could cause a global effect. And right before your eyes, white supremacy is undermined. That's why they have to shut down every revolution throughout the world because any revolution could cause a spark, and that spark... Race the, the beast Which is us We the Melanoid people are the majority in the world White people know that They're, they, White people are really the minority And they know this And that's why they, every time a revolution takes place Throughout the world They have to shut it down immediately Because if they let that one revolution rise It could cause a whole revolution Throughout the whole world It could cause a global effect They don't want a global effect That's why every revolution And America is one of the countries That everybody keeps an eye on Everybody keeps Right, exactly, it. and so Everybody. yeah, and that's and you
0: know I talked them. about it last week, but yeah, and I talked about that last week about how other people of color in other countries they're you know they're yep. watching us, and when exactly. we were marching, they were marching for us. But in addition yep. to that, so I want to hit on a few things that you said. You absolutely correct fear, and I keep explaining to people that fear is an industry. Fear yes. makes money. They sell fear. But in addition to that, you know what you said about Flint, Michigan, and you know how all of that was done on purpose. And see, all the paperwork is coming out stating that, you know, those people knew and that the governor's people knew what was Mm -hmm. happening, and they continued to allow it to happen. And, of course, the the area that has the rich whites in Flint, they were still on Detroit's water. They didn't have to worry about that. They were never switched (laughs) over, but check it. So, you know, it's like I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything because I really can't stand that, and I shut them down, you know, but – You know, I'm asking questions, right? And one of the questions that I have is, if they're trying to keep that poisoned water going in Flint, are they really trying to chase these people of color out of Flint? What is going on with the Mm, all this boils down to money and property? So yep. what is happening in Flint? Are they sitting on oil, or I mean, or what's happening is the soil over there so rich that they can turn it back they into a something. A they found something, something. They don't
1: want the people to know. Exactly.
0: What? Exactly. And that's that's one of the things that I'm thinking about. So hell, I'm thinking about. Wait, wait, wait. let me ask you a question. Michigan. Are you telling
1: me? Are, let me ask you a quick question. Mm-hmm. Are you telling me they're still pushing that dirty water? They haven't changed that yet, even though they know the water's dirty. They're still getting that same dirty water. That's what you're telling me right now? They haven't changed
0: it? Um, They're supposed to be changing it over. But, see, this is the problem. Even when they change it over, what happened is it's not necessarily, the okay, the water itself is, you know, high in acid, and that acidity yeah. is what causes the pipes to corrode with the lead. You know, exactly. so it's corroding in yeah. the lead content. Exactly. So even if they switch it over, you still you still have to get all that debris out. So until all of that is flushed out, you know, it's like, you know, even if they switch the water over, these people, these pipes are going to have to be changed. You know, if you have plastic pipes, then you're good to go. But if you have, you know, the other pipes, you know, with all of that corrosion, you have all that lead. And those people are going to have to spend a lot of money to get all that plumbing, you know, changed over. Exactly. In addition to that... You know, in addition to that, Flint nor the state of Michigan are going to help them with the money. So, again, they're going to need money from the federal government to help make that happen. And, again, a lot of people don't realize, but the state of Michigan is one of the most racist states in the country. Oh, it is. It
2: is. It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, it's one of the most racist states in this country. And so, again, we have to kind of put things in
1: perspective and, and to understand and you know what? what's going you on. You know what, my sister? Mm-hmm. You know what, my sister? This is the problem I have with my black people. They don't want to look at the elephant in the room. They want to like act like racism no longer exists. They see a couple of token Negroes making it like there's no more racism. We're holding ourselves back. And to a certain extent, yes, yeah, some of us are holding ourselves back. But race. See, what people fail to realize, when you reach a certain level of success, racism is always going to be there to to, to to either throttle your success, you know, kind of like slow it down or deter mm-hmm. you. Because one of the things that you notice, you notice that within the black community, when we reach a level of great success, you notice that some black people don't go back to the community to give. And from what I was researching, I found out a lot of black people who show interest in their people... The, the so called dominant society tries to deter them from doing that because, after like said a lot of these dominant, a lot of these so called wealthy, affluent black people, they have a lot of um, partnership with corporate companies. You know what I'm saying to you? And a lot of times, mm-hmm. what, what black people are facing, a lot of it is, how can I say, it's political. And they don't want to go there. Because if right. I look at Muhammad Ali, one of the things I loved about Muhammad Ali, he didn't care what white people thought about it. He didn't care if he lost some of his deals. Because cause I watched some of my old videos of Muhammad Ali. He would tell you, like it is, he would tell you straight up, You white people don't like me, and I don't like you too. You see know what I'm saying to you? You know what I'm saying? Like, I love my people. And I'm all about fighting for my people. And Muhammad Ali right, and was if- a star back then. Oh, yeah. He didn't care. He didn't care about the repercussions of. Certain companies and certain other businesses Mm -hmm. not wanting to associate with him because he was so pro-black. He didn't care. He knew what he was doing was the right right thing. These Negroes today, these wealthy Negroes today, oh, my God. It's like the money literally controls them. They let the money control them completely. They're just like, you know, we're not going to talk about our people. We're not going to talk about the struggles of our people. We're not going to talk the blatant racism we see. We're not going to talk about none of that. We're just going to keep it quiet and just keep doing what we have to do. And it's just shocking how in the 50s and now the black mindset is more fearful now. It's like the fear tactic is incredible. Like you said, the the fear itself is a machine, and it's just gone stronger right. throughout the decades because black people are scared now. Like, it, like, like right now, I don't see any black leadership right now. I really don't see any black leadership. And if we did have a strong black leadership, I think some black people say, you know what? I don't want to be too powerful, too pro-black, because look what happens to the people who are too pro-black. They die. They're assassinated. You know, I can name a couple of exactly. names, like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. You know, I could go on and on. So they get scared. And the thing, like I said before, and I know I keep saying it, is we got to stop being scared to die. This is the problem. Exactly. The fact that we're scared exactly. to die, we're not going to able to live. We're not going to live mm-hmm. if we're scared to die. See what I'm saying to you? Even the constant. Oh, I, I understand perfectly what you're saying.
0: And, and what you're yeah. saying, you know, I get it. I get it. And see, that's one of the things when they start killing off black leaders, this is done to serve as an example to those of you who may be thinking about you know, being a leader in the black community, and, you know, what was interesting is is that, and we're going to get into the topic because I'm going to tie it in, but basically, you know, you have people like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, especially when all of that drama jumped off in Ferguson. It was more than drama. It was a bunch of bullshit about what was happening down there. And Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton went down there and told those people to go home and pray about it. But you know, but then in the next breath, they were asking for a donation, and the people blew them away. And I went, I went off on Twitter, and you know, it was just you know the most you know horrific thing ever. And even when you know the people were protesting up in Baltimore. You had Jamal Bryant and then Yala Van Zandt going up there telling them to go home. And see, and this is the thing, you know, when they had that quote-unquote march on Washington and Al Sharpton called himself leading that and, you know, lied to the Ferguson activists, you know, that turned into a big thing. But, you know, what's happening with the black elite, and especially the black political elite, is they're trying to position themselves in front of you know this movement and they're trying to get control because again a lot of them have been bought off you know the thing is people don't understand with al Sharpton and jesse jackson when they start protesting these companies these companies are not paying because they feel that they wronged black people they're paying al and jesse to go away and if you're you know you want to question things Follow the money. Jesse Jackson's sons exactly. own one of the largest liquor distribution companies in Chicago in Illinois. Wow, in US, I didn't know Quebec, that. A, yeah, follow, go look it up. You know, follow the money. Jesse Jackson Junior had a Pepsi um distribution. Or, or, I think he had one of the um one of the warehouses. And you know, where they make and manufacture a lot of that. And so just go back and look. These people pay them to go away. And so between Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, you know, their net worths are between 10 and 25 million dollars. So we already have a disconnect there. But it's interesting, you know, and this is why I tell people you need to keep your eyes open. And that's one of the reasons why with the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the other ones, why they call it a leader fool movement so that everyone is a leader. But, you know, they want, you know, the powers that be, you know, the white establishment.
1: Wait, sister, they
0: want sister. One of, yes,
1: dear. Mhm you know another thing that I really need you to have a topic on, and I think it's an epidemic in the black community, and nobody's addressing this. i right, let me give you an example my cousin right my cousin basically is just um turned eighteen last year, he's in college right now, and he's a young black male, and when he went to um he went to these he went to a predominantly black school, like I would say about eighty percent of the student body in his high school was black. And when he went to co- uh, when he went to high school, the teachers basically are just there to babysit. He would tell me the teachers don't care. The teachers, they didn't even teach him advanced algebra. And the reason why I'm saying all this is when he got to college, he was so unprepared. And the thing That's is, right. a lot of these parents, I'm going to tell you what a lot of these parents said. My aunt, who I love very dear, I told her that your, your, your son is not ready for university. He needs to go to community college. Take a couple of remedial classes because, believe it or not, a lot of our young black boys, a lot of them are spending money on taking a remedial class that they could have already taken in high school. But because the teachers don't care, the teachers are just there to babysit, and on top of that, there's just so much distraction and confusion in the classroom because I'm going to be honest with you. Some of the stuff he told me, I was shocked, the stuff that's going on in these high schools. Like, there's no learning. It's not an environment that's conducive on learning at all. So a lot of these parents, they don't know what's going on in these high schools. These kids are so unprepared discipline-wise, mentally, academically for college. And remind you, we're not talking about no little two, $3,000 a year now. My aunt spent $60,000 to set her son to go to this top university upstate New York. And then I said to myself, wait. His grades don't look so great. Why are these universities taking all these young black boys who they know they're not prepared to handle the rigorous courses right but then i did major, then I did a research, and I'm finding out a lot of these universities right now, not the top ten universities the top tier colleges. We're talking about regular universities that's not even in the top one hundred top fifty. A lot of these universities mm-hmm. have inflated their grades and have lowered the bar for entrance exams. The reason why is because, of course, you know, the more students they could get in, the more money, the more revenue. Colleges today have become businesses, and the students have become customers. The reason why I'm so adamant, and I want the black community to be aware of this, they're setting these kids up for failure. Because one of the things I found out is when my cousin went to this university, a lot of the classes he were taking was stuff that he should already learn in high school. So now thousands, ten, tens of thousands of dollars is being spent on remedial classes because you have to again to get into the core program. You have to catch up, which could take you a year or so if you're studying hard. And my cousin said the stuff that goes on in these universities is shocking. He said right now college campuses are some of the biggest drug-infested areas you could imagine. I mean, when I tell you what my cousin – I mean, I was shocked. Cause like I said, I'm 33 years old, and I was just shocked. At stuff he was telling me that goes on in these college campuses. He was telling me some of these girls would come into his dorm room, smoking weed, doing nothing but just want to hang out. And I'm like, oh, my God, your mother sent you to a $60,000 a year school just to hang out, smoke weed, and have fun. He was like – I. I told my mother I wasn't ready, but she kept trying to push me to go to university, and I spoke to his aunt. I said, why did you not let him go to community college? He's like, community college are for failures. My friends would look at me like I didn't – like, basically, from what she was implying, that if she would have sent her son to a two-year community college school, the people around her, her peers – Or coworkers, family, and friends would look like she did a horrible. Like basically, she failed as a mother to raise her son properly. Because in the black community, we have this thing called mm -hmm. status. We're so obsessed with status, we don't see that. Okay, my son really is not disciplined. He doesn't have the academics yet to go to university. I'm going to spend sixty thousand a year. Let me send him to twenty.
0: But what we need to understand about all of that is, you know, that's across the board. That's not just in black communities. But, yeah, I mean, you know, um, sometimes there are some of us that do have an obsession with status and, you know, perception. It's killing us. It's killing us. Yeah, but in the case of your cousin, I mean, it's not just him. There are a number of, you know, situations in which that happened, you know, I went to a big ten and you wouldn't believe they were they created courses for some of the athletes that the rest of us could not enroll in. So, you know, that was telling a story there, but again, because um, I gotta get back gotta get on topic, you know, basically yeah, – my bad. I'm sorry about you know, that. The, I just I just wanted to bring that
2: topic
0: up one day. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, because I mean if you go back and you listen to last week's show You hear me talking about charter schools and how I'm anti-charter schools. I'm pro-public education, but the system needs to be revamped. And so what's happening? You know, with charter schools, yeah, with the charter schools, they're privatized and they're owned. You know, you have a lot of hedge fund managers that own these, you know, charter schools, and you have foreign nationals. And I explained how all of that happened but they are not necessarily there to teach your children. They're teaching these mm-hmm. children the test. They're teaching them the test. They're not teaching them to think critically. They're not teaching wow. them or encouraging them to think outside the box. And, again, you know, like I said, you know, you have to do the research on all of these things. And, you know, I'm going to tie it in with what I'm talking about now um, What's happening now is kind of paralleling what happened during the era of the New Deal. And what I mean by that is even back then they had what was called a black cabinet. And so this is why I'm telling people to go and research what I'm talking about in regards to the New Deal. But basically um, the black cabinet were a group of people that the White House, you know, the president would bring in to talk about issues pertaining to race and, you know, communities of color, and you have the same setup happening even now. And even if Hillary or Bernie wins or, you know, oh, my goodness, whoever wins, it's going to be the same issues because they have this, quote, unquote, Negro problem that they don't know how to deal with. And you have, again, many members of the black political elite jockeying for positions and trying to place themselves um, in, in such a light and in a position that the powers that be will need them, if you will. And, you know, and then some of these same people, what they're doing is they're deflecting away from some of the real problems that are happening in this community and basically you know let's just call it what it is they're selling out they're selling out to get their little piece of the pie and in addition to that they want to cons- they consider themselves like little celebrities but it's about what they want and maybe their intentions were honorable initially But then, you know, the situation changed and then it turned into the type of position whereas, you know, they want to know what they and their family and their cronies can get out of it. And that is what is happening now. You know, the same thing happened when Barack Obama was running and we kind of figured that he probably was going to win this thing because it was few of us looking at each other like, wait a minute, he may actually win. And so, you know, and just pay attention to what you see happening with specifically Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and how they're, you know, t- trying to kind of put together their so-called black cabinet now. And so, you know, these are a panel of advisors that, you know, talks to them about issues of race. Back then, um, with the New Deal, you had Mary McLeod Bethune, and she was helping to organize the, quote, unquote, black cabinet. And so, you know, in in return, she headed the Division of Negro Affairs for, you know, and, so to, and this was to get job training for, you know, young minority students. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, and these people are not fully committed to civil Sister. rights, into racial parity, you know, wealth equality, because they got a head start. And this system is designed so that they can continue to have that gap. And unfortunately, Sister, I, we have a lot can of Can I
1: say
2: people.
1: Real quick? Yes, dear. Yeah, what I was trying to say is, because um, I think some people probably didn't get my full message, what I was trying to say by the college thing is because I was reading this mm-hmm. article, I don't know if you're aware, the 1980s, you had a lot of, Programs that were set up for inner city youth, like 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 you mm-hmm. know, training programs to train these kids how to be mechanics, plumbers, electricians, and the unions, yeah, which are you know predominant. Yeah, exactly. Trades, trade schools, and they had it implemented in the high school, so the kids would literally right after a certain period of class, they will learn how to, like I said, learn how to be plumbers, tech, um, um, electricians, you know, jobs that pay really good career-orientated goals. And what happened Mm -hmm. is the unions got involved and they took these programs out of all the major inner-city schools in the 90s. Like, I read this whole documentary on this. And now they're pushing all these kids to college, which sounds good on the surface, but the problem is these kids, like I said before, the lack of discipline, the lack of academics, because like I said, a lot of, I don't know if you know, a lot of inner-city schools don't even go up to calculus or algebra, even advanced algebra. Like a lot of these inner-city schools, they're finding out that the level of math that these kids should be proficient at, it's like very, very basic. So when they go to college, they're very, like they're so unprepared. So now a lot of this kid, like because right now, let's say you go to a four-year school, this kid's not going to be in there for four years. He might be there for six years because two years he's trying to catch up to his level, so now rather than have a thirty forty dollars 40000 debt, he has a sixty seventy dollars 70000 debt. So they're literally setting these kids up for failure because, like I said, in the 80s and 90s, these kids, they were doing very well in these programs, and the white unions got scared because you have to understand, if you look at major cities, who's doing all the plumbing, the who's, who's – like all these jobs – That are good paying jobs, electricians, plumbing, it's white old men that have these jobs and they pass it on to their kids. So when they took these programs out in the 80s and 90s.
0: But I'm saying, but again, part of that is the raw deal that we've gotten in this country. And it does tie into, you know, um, a little bit about what we're talking about today because, yeah, you don't have a lot of schools that teach these particular trades, you know, whether it's electrical or plumbing or even cosmetic, exactly. you know, a number of these things, they've been taken out of the schools. And even with the charter schools, they're not going to be teaching those children that they're teaching these children how to pass the test. And, yeah, what was interesting is is that, you know, during my high school years, I lived in a few different cities. And when I lived out in the white suburban areas, um, You know, it was just really interesting how the curriculum had changed. But, yeah, in a lot of these inner cities, um, they're not teaching calculus, you know, like you were talking about um, algebra, trigonometry. You know, they're not teaching that as well because a lot of these kids have to, you know, try to keep up. They're dealing with teachers that are unqualified or underqualified. They're dealing with old books. And no, 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 I'm I'm not making excuses for it. I'm saying what the reality is. You know, the classrooms are, you know, overburdened. You know, instead of having 25 students, you may have 50 students in a classroom. I mean, it's just a number. And what we're talking about now is environment, environment. But, look, I need to get a couple of other calls, but, you know, I'm going to place you on hold. I'm going to come back to you. All right, hold on, dear. All right. All right, we got another caller here. Caller, may I have your name?
4: Yeah, my name is Pianchi. How you doing?
0: Hey, Pianchi. How are you?
4: Pretty good. Can you hear me okay?
0: I hear you just fine. Long time no hear.
4: Yeah. But that young man is really on the ball with him staying abreast of the things that's going on. And he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, out of the, all the historical black colleges, and you probably heard me mention this before, but it's a fact you only have five with a graduation rate over 50% in six years. And as he said, in six years, you are paying 50% more in tuition than you would if you done it in four years. And you got some schools that the graduation rate is as low as 12 and 17%. And that is totally crazy. But here's the point. Blacks and old have an idea what's going on. But they still look to the same people to correct this, and they are not going to do it. Because
0: then talking about will compete against theirs. Then. Right, exactly. But see, you know, what's happening in a lot of cases, and what I'm seeing, and I just mentioned it a minute ago, you have these black elites or the black political elites that, you know, promise you know, the working class and the poor, that, you know, that they're fighting for them, not only the, you know, the political elite, but also, you know, these so-called politicians that we elect time after time that have failed us. And we need to start holding them more accountable. And unfortunately, we believe them when they say that they're going to go to Congress or talk to the powers that be to address the issues that are happening in our community. And so that's why, with this show here, when I just spoke about the black cabinet, again, you know, you're seeing the same things now. You see these people who are, quote unquote, advisors to the president, advisors to the governor, you know, uh, or, you know, basically all of these churches in our community, and a pastor is supposed to be some type of leader. And at the end of the day, people get disappointed and they get upset when they find out that these people were only out for themselves and their few cronies because those are the only ones that are prospering from it. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, the type of pressure that is being put on these politicians and these so-called leaders now, I think that this is a wonderful thing. And this is something that needs to start happening. Mm hmm. But.
4: Blacks is going to have to straighten their stuff out themselves. They're the biggest sellouts. Blacks are the largest sellouts of themselves than anyone in particular leader. I'm talking about as a group because you, you have this habitual thing of continuing to do the same thing over and over again, whether it's politics, whether it's in your consumerism, whatever it is. Those schools that that gentleman was talking about, now you could have those in charter schools, but somebody has to form that type of a school. Uh, I went to a trade high school uh, where we learned all that stuff in high school, in high school, but they don't have it anymore. I
0: I understand. Exactly. But, you know, I disagree when you say that blacks are the biggest sellouts and that, you know, we're creating and perpetuating. No, they are. They vote
4: Democratic over and over and over again. again, Look at your Democratic-controlled cities.
0: All right. But, you know, I disagree with that. And the reason why I disagree with that is because, again, you know, the environment, the structural systems that we have in place, you know, basically the racism has been, you know, woven into that from the very first days. And, again, when it comes to the systemic and institutionalized racism, the people who created that system are the ones who are going to have to destroy it. Now, in regards to blacks, you know, voting Democratic over and over, at one point we voted Republican. You know, we were on that particular team, you know, the party of Lincoln. And, again, that ties into the New Deal because when those programs were rolled out, what happened was the the black community, they felt like there was some hope there. They felt like, you know, maybe their future was going to be better, that, you know, they or their children would be more prosperous in the future. And so that is one of the reasons why they switched from voting Republican to voting for Democrats. And we all know that the original Democrats, the Dixiecrats, were some of the biggest racists and that is why with these particular programs from the New Deal, why blacks suffered more under those pro- programs as opposed to, you know, being helped and prospering. And it wasn't only just the black community. You had the Asian community and you had the um, Latino, Chicano, Asian, um, different communities, Latino communities out there. And I wanted to tell you guys about some of the issues that they had to deal with as well because you know I just think it's important that you know these other communities know that you know we know that they had to deal with a bunch of mess as well and I'm looking for my notes where are my notes where are my notes and so let's um, see here yeah it just it hurt a lot of these different groups of people but again um, it's not up to us to you know, dismantle racism. And, again, you know, what's happening now and what was happening then is that the black colleges, they stopped receiving, you know, um, donations from white philanthropists. They, you know, that happened then, that's happening now. You know, in some cases they're not, um, you know, getting the money that they need in order to effectively administer those particular colleges Um, again you know with some of the inner cities you know like you all were talking about some of these programs that were taken out of the high school how in some cases you were able to leave high school and get a job as an apprentice probably as being a plumber or an electrician and a number of other things or you know and and that's not there anymore and all of that is being done on purpose this happened even back then And what's happening is, you know, the first young man, Jacob from Brooklyn, when he was talking about, um, you know, our communities and what has happened to them and the Section 8 programs, and I've explained on the show about how the Section 8 programs work and how, you know, they're pushing people off of these particular programs like Section 8 because the state will continue to receive a certain amount of money from the federal government, but as they push more and more people off of these programs, they get to take those additional funds and apply it to their, you know, pet programs, you know, like Bridges to Nowhere. And so, you know, with them taking, you know, all of that and and going back to what he was saying about the Section 8, the majority of the people that benefit from that are wealthy white landowners. You know, they own a lot of these properties, and, you know, you all have heard us on the show. I've talked about how a lot of these ministries, you know, own a lot of property. If you go and you look at their portfolios, some of the biggest slumlords you can find, all of that is being done on purpose. And when the young man, Jacob from Brooklyn, when he was talking about how fear you know, how, you know, we've become comfortable in our oppression. He is absolutely 100% correct. We've become comfortable in, you know, everything just being okay or barely passing or, you know, just leave me alone and, and end it. That is correct. We've become comfortable in oppression. and And, you know, what's interesting is now you have people rising up, and they're out here, and they're organizing, and they're talking to the people in the community. And again, you know, even the support that they get, it comes from very few people. And this is why, you know, I like to contrast what's happening now with what was happening during the civil rights movement, because only a small percentage of the churches in the black community, um, only a small percentage of them supported them. You know, but nowadays when you hear people talk about what happened then, everybody wants to claim that, you know, MLK is their cousin. and You know, and it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. But we have another caller on the line. Let's pull them into the conversation. May I ask who's calling?
3: Are you responding to 410? Yes, I am. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I just overheard Brother Piyaki a few minutes ago. I've heard him on other radio programs. And mm-hmm. uh, he brought me back to a thing a long time ago when I was um, looking at D.E.T. Eric Sharpton was up there talking about racism and discrimination and everything. And there was a sister by the name of Sherazade Lee was on the uh, panel with him. And he was talking mm-hmm. about how black schools were being discriminated against. And she says something that has stuck to me this day. This has been about 20 years ago. Brother Al, if you have your own, you can't be discriminated against. And Al Sharpton was speechless. And I said that to say this. Black folks last year spent $1.1 trillion. Let me repeat that. Black people spent $1.1 trillion for the things they needed, Mm -hmm. like food, clothing, shelter, transportation. Now, the thing is, you and I know that there are no black businesses in the black community. And also, last year, black churches collected from all of us pro-folk $30 billion. Mm -hmm. Now, my thing is this. Theocracy is something that was very profound. The thing is, is this. We don't have to look to the politicians. We don't have to look to the movie stars. We don't have to look to the mm-hmm. black Where I live at, black people spend $55 billion on just consumer goods. The black church in my state collected last year $6.5 billion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't think of Warren. His name is Warren Valentine did a, a study. He showed in 10 years black churches collected $421 billion. Now, all of these numbers, i throw it out at you to say this. Every local community community, could get together. Forget about Al Shopton. Forget about Jesse mm-hmm. Jackson. Right. We could take what we put in the collection place. Every Sunday that we take up for God, and give it to white boys and put it in their banks. We could take that money and put up the grocery stores, put up the credit unions, put up the car insurance companies, and we could give people a job. Now, in my state, black people spent something like about $5.6 billion just in groceries. Now, it would take a whole lot of supermarkets. In my supermarket, you could take 100 supermarkets harm 30 people and create thirty three thousand jobs, not counting the Mm trucks that they take to deliver the food to the grocery store. So my thing is this. The brother said it right. We're comfortable in our oppression, but we're also financing our oppression. The white boy can't discriminate against us if we have our own. He's not discriminating against the Chinese. He's not discriminating against the Koreans, which they're feasting off of us because we're buying all our stuff from them. In my neighborhood when I was in Baltimore, Koreas had all of the fast food joints. ARAB's had all of the gas stations. Last time I checked, my car burns gas. You mean to tell me going well, to put up a convenient mark?
0: Well the thing we is we have gotten to the that, point
3: you know, that we have mm-hmm. brought in on the propaganda.
0: Well, I mean, but this is the thing here. And this is the thing here is that, yes, correct, we should own businesses in our neighborhoods. And at one point in time, we did. We owned businesses in our neighborhoods. And, and, you know, you're talking about the Koreans and Arabs and, you know, these different people coming into our communities. You know what a lot of people don't realize or understand? If you go back and listen to the show that I had with Dr. Jeffrey Perry, We talked about how when you have these, you know, foreign nationals coming to this country, that they're given a stipend, a certain amount of money to start businesses. And those monies are not available to, you know, blacks, you know, that have been living in this country. But also with the Koreans, the way that they have set things up is that they buy their stuff in bulk. They buy it collectively. And they're able to keep the prices at a certain amount so that they all prosper as far as, you know, like the beauty supply stores and all of that. And it has been extremely difficult for, you know, people of color to get into that type of industry of owning but a beauty salon or a beauty shop as far as selling the supplies and things of that nature. But, but yes, a lot of the money but, that we spend, because, you know, we we have been raised to be consumers. And a lot of the money me, that ma'am. we
3: spend Mhm. But, but pardon me, you're making my point. You're exactly reinforcing what I just said because the thing is, is this. I know my wife. My wife goes to the beauty parlor every. My wife goes to the beauty parlor two times a month. That's in my budget. Mm -hmm. You mean to tell me? And like I started, I've started a beauty shop out here. But you mean to tell me all of that money we're putting in the banks on Monday that we collect from poor folks on Sunday, we can't
2: get together. I
0: was leading up to that my comments were leading up to that whereas you know I, I said you know the Koreans they buy it in bulk they buy it collectively And that is something that we definitely – exactly, that's what I'm saying. But in addition to that, you know, in addition to us buying things collectively and supporting businesses, black businesses in our community, because we need that money to circulate, and that's one of the problems. The money does not circulate enough times in our own communities. But, again, you know, for those that have been listening to me for a while, if you go back three, four years ago, one of the things that I did talk about then, and I kind of walked away from, but I still believe, is that with the money that's being collected by these churches tax-free, I feel that a lot of the congregants, the parishioners, should be outside ticketing their churches because if they're bringing in in one particular church if they're collecting donations of let's say two million dollars a year from tithes offerings and you know even if you're in a choir you still have to pay monthly dues and if you're an usher and then they usually have a deal going with they make you wear these uniforms and then the tailor you know turns around and gives a portion of that money back to the pastor in the church my thing is that if the church, if the pastor is riding around in a Rolls Royce or a Maybach or, and lives in a multi million dollar home, why isn't he investing in businesses in the neighborhood and giving people in the neighborhood a job? Why aren't these churches that for some odd reason they know how to become a conglomerate when they're fighting against abortion and all of these other things that they claim is against God's will, but yet they don't want to put their money together to bring and, and start and, you know, um, support, you know, manufacturing plants and things like that that would give the people in the community, you know, some give them more income, empower them. And in addition to that, it would empower the leaders of those particular organizations as well. So, no, I'm not saying that, you know, I disagree with you totally. You know, the things that you're talking about, are feasible. The one thing that I do disagree with is that it's our own fault and we did this to ourselves. Because, again, you you
3: know, I've had... Hmm? Who else can you blame? Look, uh, I'm retired right now, but I used to make a decent Mm -hmm. salary. And the thing is, is this. If I go out there every weekend and I get into a Friday night poker game and Mm -hmm. then I got... Uh, another family on the side. I got a chick on the side with two other outside children.
4: And I go out
3: there and I buy a brand new car and I buy a suit of clothes and I don't take care of my house. Who's at fault? I'm at fault. And the thing is, is this, what is happening, integration crept in. And we had a bunch of assimilationists back in the 30s when we had our own black Wall Streets. And they bought Mm -hmm. into this integration thing and said that the white man's ice was always colder. And the thing is, that's how we bought into this thing. But before in, black folks had their own little districts, just like the Chinatowns and everything else. So, yeah, I blame us because the thing is, we have intelligence. We see what's happening. You explained it very well. And for those
0: those that have been listening to the show... I've been saying that the whole time. We have the intelligence, we have the money, we have the capability of, of recreating a Black Wall Street to do all of these so wonderful things. There were a number of, but there were a number of prosperous, you know, Black towns and cities throughout America. But the problem is, the problem is, how do we keep it? Because again, if you go back to Black Wall Street, if you go back to Wilmington, North Carolina, and a number of you know places, Tulsa, Rosewood, all of that. Basically, when, when poor whites, when the poor whites got upset and jealous because these towns were prospering more than them, because, you know, we have to admit a lot of poor whites do not feel that any black should be more prosperous to, you know, than themselves, they went in. They they were hanging people. They were killing people. They ran those people out of town. They stole their land, all of that, put them out of, you know, out of office because in Wilmington, you know, there were a lot of blacks in positions of power within government, and they ran them off. And so that's the issue now because, I mean, even with what happened in 2007 and 2008 with the mortgage bubble, basically a lot of black wealth, Latino wealth, a lot of that was lost, and the powers so, that you know, be that the, created that situation. But again, you know, we don't own, you know, mass. We we don't own these banks. You know, there are some man, white banks out there, but it was but, but the white bankers. You know, many of they have not gone to jail. They have not faced charges. They just literally stole that. The and yes. That's no, it's irrelevant not. because, look, no, it's should, not. We, should, no, it's not. should we no, it's not become not. If that is their wealth and that is how they have equity, if, you know, those are their assets that they've built equity in, they can take that equity and they can take some of that money to possibly throw in the pool to reinvest back into the community. I mean, you know, the, I've talked about cooperatives. There are a number of ways that we can give back into our community. The problem, you know, one of the problems with it, again, like I said, when we create the wealth, number one, how do we keep it? But also, how do we deal with the infighting? Because well, this is the something way you, that
3: the, no,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Go ahead. The way you do it is you defend what you have. You know, the honorable Raj Mohan said, "Look, you if you don't build a business, if you can't, which means if we build a business or so we have outside of town, or we have businesses." We have to defend it. And that's something that black men, black males, because we're not men, is scared to do. Yeah, you're going to have to fight to protect your property right here where I live at. I protect my property. But it's not only only
0: black men being affected by this. You know, black women as well. You know, we have to learn how to. I
3: said that Mm -hmm. because men are supposed to be the warriors. I don't want my woman out there carrying a rifle when I'm capable of doing that myself. But all I'm saying is, uh, the thing is, we have the wealth. Like I stated earlier, and I'm gonna get off the line because I'm hogging the, the minutes. We spent one point one trillion dollars last year. We don't need white banks. We are a bank. We we're bigger than we're bigger than JP Morgan in spending. And the churches are collecting and thirty 11. million dollars everything. So, Which I mean, that. and, and
0: I, I agree. agree. I mean, I I get that. I agree we're putting all this money, you know, into the church basket, investing a lot of money in consumer goods that we don't need, that we don't make, that we don't prosper from. But at the same time, we have to go back to, you know, like when Jacob, you know, from Brooklyn was talking about how a lot of the programs and classes that were available to some people primarily white kids we don't have they're not teaching a lot of these black kids in high
2: school about finance to. about okay.
0: economics and i mean some of the, a lot of the parents don't know because i've talked to a number of people you know because i've worked corporate and academia right and right. you know whenever you know i would you know change jobs i would roll over my 401k and a number of other things and i would talk to other people and they were like well i'm not putting any money in that and You know, I would ask them why, especially if it was set up that, you know, you were vested within a year. And I'm like, what you're doing is throwing away free money. But a lot of people don't know about these things. So a lot of this we need to do some re-education. And one of the things that I've said, you know, and I talked about this, you know, at the um, Black Lives Matter conference last year, um, you know, in one of the classes, one of the sessions we were in, And I was talking about how we need to open up the freedom schools again and and start teaching people about this because the average person out there, and everybody wants to talk about, you know, Pookie and Ray Ray wanting $15 an hour to work at McDonald's. Even with the $15 an hour, you know, most people cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment, let alone the two-bedroom if they got a kid, and, you know, we need to teach them about financing. But, again, as, as you know, even if they do raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, what's going to happen is they're going to end up raising the rent and raising the utilities and all of that to suck up the rest of that money in addition to the money that they're spending to put in the church. And then, you know, you can't go to that church and not look a certain way, which, you know, a lot of this plays into it. And this is why the community needs to be reeducated on some things. And for those of us that know better and may have done better, you know, it's it's up to us. We need to get out here and educate folks. But, yeah, a lot of that money can be, you know, redirected back into our communities. We just have to get people to get out here and to get it started. But, you know, the thing is is that also over the years we've been trained not to trust each other. You know, that not to believe it unless it comes out of the mouth of a white person. And that's one of the things that I've been talking about with this series, you know, about the New Deal, about how, you know, there have been black and Latino men and women who have died fighting for our civil rights and our human rights. And then you'll have people like Tim Wise or Rachel Dolezal or some other type of great white savior that come in and become multimillionaires on our pay. And people still don't listen to us. So, I mean, going back to what you said, yeah, it's, it's a lot that needs to be done. We need to put the money back into the communities. It can be done, but we've been raised to be consumers, and we have to change that mindset. And that's one of the reasons why after the 2000, 2007, 2008 mortgage bus this is why they started printing more money in the United States and pumping it into the economy which is why you hear us talking about this economy being held up basically by air And what happens is when you start mass producing more money like that the value of the dollar goes down but we don't talk a lot about economics and how it affects the community as well, not only our community, but this entire country. I think Jacob wants to say something else.
1: Are you there, Jacob? Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the things – I love everything this brother is saying. What this brother is saying is is deep, and I think he's 100% on a bullseye. But the problem is brother has to understand we're in a war, And white people will use everything at their disposal to keep the black people down. I mean, Wall Street was a prime example of that. My sister eloquently said that black people at one point did have their own banks. I mean, I don't know if some people know, but black Wall Street had their own airport. They had their own airport, hospitals, banks, cinemas, and white people destroyed this. The thing is, exactly, Dr. Umar Johnson and um, there was another Neil Fuller oh, said you cannot oh, have a white. I, let me not even bring up Dr. Umar Johnson. Let me talk about Neil no. Fuller. Neil Fuller is an eighty-six year old <laughs> man, and you might not like what he said, but some of the stuff he says is deep because you cannot have a nation within a nation. And I love what he said when he said that because what you're talking about is building a nation within a nation. And that cannot happen. That's never happened throughout the history of mankind, where you have a nation building itself within a nation. Because you're talking about the black nation. But the thing, but the thing is, is thing, that
0: there's a black America and there's a white America. I mean, that is evidence that we're living. That you know, we may be living next door to each other, but there are two types of America there. And yeah, now we, the Umar Johnson, now you know can't get down with that. And let the, me ask you type. a question: What, what do you but, think about um,
1: Neely Fuller? What do you think about Neilu Fuller?
0: I don't think anything. I mean, you, these are not people that I follow. they are people that I read, or pardon?
1: Okay, now I'm saying Neilu Fuller is yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. you not, you don't subscribe to. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are not people that I necessarily subscribe to. And when he, when the young, when the gentleman was talking about Shahrazad Ali. I wasn't sure what comment was about to come out of his mouth because okay. she's another one that's like, you know, big old thumbs down to. But, you know, yeah. I mean, I understand. And one of the things that we have to be careful about is, you know, we talk about capitalism, we talk about white supremacy, but unfortunately when you have some of these people like Umar Johnson and people of that particular ilk, they agree with white supremacy, except they want to see it in black face. So you know that is the reason why, and you know this—that's the reason why some of them, you know, will side with you know a lot of these white supremacists because they believe those particular concepts. They just don't want to see David Duke over there. They'd rather see you know, you know, some of our little ho-tub brothers walking around looking like Grandmaster but Flash. They'd rather see them. Up there, so I mean that's one thing we have to be careful Wait, about because white supremacy is white supremacy, whether it has a black face or a white face, is the same thing.
1: But can I ask you one last question? And my question is this: Whatever we mm-hmm. create, like the, the brother said earlier, we're going to have to protect it. Do you honestly believe black people create a military force as strong as the United States military? Because let's be honest. Hold on, let me just say something. You had a white host on Fox News who called the Black Panthers the Ku Klux Klan. Literally, this woman literally went on national television and said that whole Beyonce thing with the formation, that whole Black Panther salute that Beyonce did in the Super Bowl she was praising a Ku Klux Klan type of organization. Now, this is the type of rhetoric white people or the white dominant the white dominant society spews out. So how do you know? Because let's be honest. Let's not live in a fictitious fantasy world. Let's be honest. The day black people starts to get strong, we start to unite it. And we bring out our guns to protect ourselves from our oppressors. Because let's be honest. They're going to come at us because the day we start rising up, we become a threat to them. And they start rising up. Exactly. And then the same organization, I mean, just, I'm just going to wrap it up real quick. The same organization that's just there to defend their people and defend their assets and their property and their wealth, the white people are going to figure out mm-hmm. how to twist that and make these people look like terrorists. We both, let's keep it real. Exactly. So now they're going to oh, That's their the whole Congress thing. But that's the Detroit. whole thing right there.
0: I'm the one who said that we need to protect it. We can create these, you know, these incredibly wealthy towns and cities and industry, but we need to know how to protect it because they will come in and take it. And that was the issue with the Black Panthers, you know, why white people have such a problem with them. Because number one, the Black Panthers
2: were extremely
0: organized. And number two, they were putting together programs that the community needed, and it started garnering a lot of support from the community. Last week, I talked about the number of programs that were created, like the breakfast program, the you know the um, medical clinic, and you know just the number of things that the Black Panthers implemented, and that were extremely successful. And that was the problem because the federal government exactly. And that's why that's and that's why I called it, you know, um called them political prisoners. The federal government knew that with those programs being put in place that these people were going to get more support because we had Latinos, indigenous exactly. Asians all in support. With they were becoming a and up. that yeah. was but check it, but let me but let me finish. That was the only really the only group of or movement that was really positioning themselves to overthrow the American government. It was going and 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 they were they were organized and so that is one of the reasons why to this day they hate the Black Panthers why they're distorting the history why you know they put those people in jail for all of those numbers of years for mm-hmm. nothing you know and, and and you know you get more jail times for kicking a white person's dog than you do for killing a black person
2: and yep. so.
0: You know again, I mean, the thing is is that you know where you and Pianchi and the other gentlemen where you're coming from, I get it. I understand it. Some of this I agree with, but other things you know, I just want us to take a step back and and really use some critical thinking there because again. White supremacy is white supremacy, whether it has a white face or a black face. And we're talking about the system itself and how it needs to be destroyed. You have people out here saying that we need to change the system. This system has been built to not be destroyed. This system has been built so that it continues to to perpetuate itself and it continues to grow. And it has been written into the very fibers, you know, of this country down to the Constitution that this system is the law of the land and this is why... And, you know, something I believe you said earlier about, you know, blacks in other parts of the world and how when they see us rise up, they rise up. And when they rise up, because everything was fine when Arab spring was across over there in Egypt, in Pink Spring, but when we started saying and talking about the injustice happening in the United States, they wanted to shut that down. But they were encouraging all these other people. And so, you know, what's interesting about that is, there was an article I had to find it and I'll post it on my wall and it was you know people black people globally talking about different issues and how when when most black issues are brought up is brought up from the perspective of black Americans which kind of shuts down black people in other parts of the world I had to find that and post it because there's a lot of truth to that but again you know You know, what we're dealing with now, this has been passed down through generations. Again, you know, we were talking about the New Deal and talking about these programs, you know, that were created then. And even some of the programs that you all were talking about from the 70s and 80s, you know, because they were giving money away for kids to go to college, especially in the 80s and in the 70s. But the thing is, is that those programs were, you know, basically, you know, factored out and like when he was talking about the trade school program, those have been factored out, too, and there's a reason for that. And that's why I say we need to reopen the Freedom School, not only to educate people about finances, but a lot of us are experts on things. You know, I'm a subject matter expert on networks. I've built networks across Europe, Asia, and America, and, I mean, I can sit down I can teach, you know, a monkey how to fix a computer. So I mean you know, it it, it you yeah. know, we have the skill sets. We have the skill sets. We can make well, let me uh, ask you know a make question, and though. put
1: together it, mm-hmm. Do you think black people could ever become powerful? Because I keep hearing we're going to have to protect our community because we know they're going to come after us so if we get too powerful. That's that's a given because history always repeats exactly. itself, and history is a way right. to guide us to what's going to happen in the future. See what I'm saying to you? So my point is, do you really believe black people become so powerful regards to defending ourselves from white supremacy because you know they will come after like i said do you think we could win because let's be honest do you really think we're going to win against this powerful system this 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 incredible system known as the you know white supremacy because they're going to use every technology every tool in their arsenal to destroy us because they've done it in the past so why would we think then it's not going to be done in the future see what i'm saying to you oh yeah. like do you think and we're really that's why, win? That, and
0: that's why and that's why you keep hearing me say, how do we protect it? And, you know, and this is one of the reasons why myself and a number of others were pointing the finger at, you know, the white people as far as them destroying, you know, racism. And, and the thing is, is that, again, it's hard to even get them to admit that they have any privilege, especially if you're talking to a poor white person. But in regards oh, yeah. to the system, the system as it is right now, No. You know, that's not going to happen. We're not going to become more powerful than the system than it is right now. But, I mean, we still want to encourage people to be out here, but we have to find another way. And, I mean, a lot of people got upset with Oprah when she said we just have to let the old whites that are holding on to this, we just have to let them die off. There's a lot of truth to that. And as far as the system is, the way it's set up now, no, this system is not designed to destroy itself. This system is not designed to make people outside of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants wealthy. The other people that fall within the white hierarchy, again, those are not, you know, WASPs. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants are Western Europeans. You know, Germans, English people, those are the WASPs. The other white people, they fall within Again, you know, a certain type of hierarchy, and that's where it comes into play about the social contract that I was talking about and why you see the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of the Libertarians and all of that. They want a new social contract, and that their contract, their responsibility is to continue to oppress communities of color, even if it comes at the expense of some poor white. That is how mm. it is set up, and what's happening what right,
1: right now. There. That's deep. That's really deep. What you just said, because because with that whole Flint, Michigan thing, we know that there was some white people there, and they got you know they got messed up just as black people did. That's that's really deep. What you just right. said right there. And it's
0: the truth. And it's the truth. And that's why, you know, I want to do this show, and I really want to talk about progressive liberal whites in this country, you know, because they claim that they're not racist, but yet racism still persists. How does that work? How does that happen? So, you know, when I read finish reading this book, I have to get started, but it's called Racism Without Racists. And, you know, it says, Colorblind Racism in the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. And that's why we have this show. This is why we talk about these different things, because it's important. But, no, like I said, we can do it. We've done it before. We can do it. How do we keep it? That's the problem. Because what happens is when we build that type of wealth, build that type of power, then you have people, and usually they'll they'll use poor whites and, you know, galvanize them and egg them on and push them out to come and destroy what we have. That is part of that social contract. And that is what makes Donald Trump's run for presidency so alarming. Look at who's showing up to his rallies. They're openly giving the, you know, the um, the Nazi hand salute. They're openly calling us niggers. When they when they were beating up some of the protesters, they were calling him niggers and, you know, string them up to a tree, all of this. And this is, you know, and in, in it started with when, when President Obama was elected. I remember but having we some arguments with But we both know Donald Trump's friends. not going to
1: win. We, we both know realistically Donald Trump's not going to win. That's impossible. I don't see Donald well, Trump winning at all.
2: Well,
0: look, see, but no, let me tell you. Now, the reason why I'm worried and I think that it's possible that he could win is because you have people out here saying that if Bernie Sanders does not win the Democratic nomination, that they're not going to vote at all. They absolutely refuse to vote for Hillary. So if you have these people sitting at home because they're angry because Bernie didn't win, and then you have a certain sector of society who feels that our votes do not count anyway, so they don't believe in voting. As a matter of fact, these people discourage voting and Hypothetically, if there's a lower voter turnout, the Republicans will win. And the only thing that could probably stop Donald Trump to not get the GOP nomination is if they have a brokered convention. And trust me, you're going to see them breaking out, you know, torches and pitchforks because that is what is going to happen. Is Violence is going to break out. And that is what's going to happen. And that's why we're sitting back, because that violence is not just going to be in the arena of the Republican National Convention. These people are going to take it to the streets. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I am one of those people who does believe in the Second Amendment. I believe we have the right to bear arms, to defend ourselves and our property. I've what do you think about
1: that? What do you think that about that incident that happened in um Oregon with those white guys taking over that building and they literally telling the government, "Hey, if you try to come get your building back." I and mean, this is this is the ironic thing about the thing. The whole thing is that mm-hmm. these guys go into a federal building, take over the federal mm-hmm. building and tell the government, "If you mm-hmm. try to take your building back, we're going to kill you." And nothing, and literally, the government waited almost like a month to work a peace treaty with these guys. Terrorists. These guys were really terrorists. Exactly. Literally terrorists. But, see, check and yet.
0: But, but check it. But check it out. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go on Google, and I want you to uh, talk about black people take over federal building in Oregon. It happened. They took those black people down in three days. You understand? Uh, and, you know, I'm telling you. So this is why, you know, I challenge people, go out there and read. Go out there and get a better understanding. Um, you know, I mean, even just go and get the history of the state of Oregon. That was supposed to be a white utopia. You understand? Yeah, and up until that. the eighties, yeah, 80s, yeah and, and up until the 80s, they had laws on the books that you should take blacks out in the street and whip them at least once a year. So I'm just, what I'm saying is that I'm not necessarily arguing against you and Pianchi and the other caller. I'm, you know, I'm not arguing with you about some of the things that you're saying. Some of the things that you're saying I completely agree with. It's just that, you know, with me, I want it to be put in proper context. And I also want to contrast it because a lot of the things that these white people are doing, trust me, we've tried it and we've done it at some point. And you have a number of double standards out there, but yeah, no, it, black people took over a federal building in Oregon in three days; it was squashed, you know. And and the whole thing is is that you know look but at what my happened, sister, you know, the, at the bunny.
1: Yes, dear. My sister. One of the things that really upsets me, and even when I bring about them, even when I bring this topic now, it makes me very emotional. Is that whole Tamir Rice, um you know, mm-hmm. um, thing that went down in Cleveland last year. And when I look right. at – when I when I delve deep into the case and I look at the blatant disrespect for the family, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Like, first of all, did you know that the, the, the state tried to have them pay $500 in ambulance fees for their son's death? Did you what? know that?
0: And it claimed it was it, a mistake, that they never yeah. meant for them to be sent that bill.
1: Yeah, That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. And yes, then the prosecutor is. to defend a cop? That's never happened in the history where a prosecutor is there defending the mm-hmm. person who committed the crime. That that doesn't make exactly. sense. That's exactly. a, it, oh, my. I don't even know how to even hey, digest this case. It's just right. crazy. No,
0: listen, listen, dear. I'm right there with you. I am right there with you what's been happening. But, again, you know, it has been known for the past 20, 30-plus years that, you know, you had um, basically Klux Klux Klanners and white Aryan nation people joining the military as well as joining um, the police force. And, you know, again, it goes back to what I'm talking about with the social contract as far as them um you know going out in the street and executing people of color in cold blood. Part of this is part of that social contract and this is why I'm stressing this to people. You know the book The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. I haven't read it yet but I can only imagine some of the nuggets I'm gonna get out of there. But what I'm saying is none of this is by coincidence. And you know what's interesting about, you know, um that case with Tamir Rice is last year, you know, the the movement for black lives, they had their conference in Cleveland. And they were expecting 500 of us, but 1500 of us showed up. And it was just a weekend of love. If you hear about it, you know, for this year, I would encourage you guys to be there, and, you know, I didn't advertise it last year, but, you know, this year I would definitely be all over it, but the thing is, is that, you know, at the end of the conference that Sunday when we were walking back to the dorms to get on, you know, the little charter buses, uh, we saw these cops, and we saw them pick up this little black boy and slam him to the ground, Now, you know, it was only like six or seven of us walking down the street. And when we saw that, we went and started asking questions. Next thing I know, I see 20, 30 of us because people were texting. And next thing I know, it was a couple of hundred of us. And they sat in front of and around the police car because they then the police picked up the young man and put him in their car. And they were trying to drive off, but the protesters sat down in front of the car and around the car. So they couldn't move, and so they called for backup. And so they got out of their car, and they had to roll the window down so that the young man could have some air, right? And Mm. basically, one of the protesters got the young man to give them his mom's cell phone number, and they called his mama up because, see, they were claiming they were getting ready to take that young man to jail. Mm. When in most situations, when you have an adolescent, you're supposed to call the parent or take that yeah, kid home. Exactly, I
2: mean, that's what they would exactly. do with
0: a white child but not a black one. Well, anyway, wow. to tell you the rest of the story here, I'm going to kind of, you know, pull it up real quick. You know, the protesters would not let them leave with that young man. It was a bunch of squad cars that came up. One of the white police officers, he was the sergeant, he decided he wanted to pepper spray everybody. And so, you know, of course some of us are like getting out the because someone like me, I can't take it. But what yeah. happened was some of you know, and it was right there in the area. I just happened to not get hit by it. But we had to triage the young man, so I'm grabbing his hair and holding his face up as they're pouring milk in his eyes. You know, and it was just a number of things happening and then they called out the black police. So it was a black male what and the the a black, black female. Oh, oh, I think it was another
1: they called out the black police?
0: Yeah, they called them out. So it was about three black police officers, two men and okay. one woman, and, you know, trying to control us. But by this time, you know, it was not happening. And then the young man's mom, you know, made it there. And I guess that was his little sister and another relative. But, you know, basically the police were saying that they were not going to release him to the custody of his mom until we dispersed And so, you know, you had the EMT there and all of that, and it was some white EMTs, but then the black female EMT showed up, and she pushed them out the way, and she triaged the young man to make sure that he wasn't hurt. But at that time, the protesters, you know, we were not going anywhere. We formed a line directly to the ambulance, so they couldn't snatch him and take him. And so the young man and his mom, you know, they went to the ambulance, they checked him out, and then the police said that they were going to let him go. And so then the wall moved from the ambulance to his mom's car. And then, you know, as the mom drove off, you know, and as they were walking towards the car, we started chanting, we love you. And we blocked the street off so that the police couldn't run behind them. So, wow. I mean, that's powerful this the right first. There. What
1: you said right there, that's powerful right there, man. That's a real powerful thing. There, yeah. yeah. We need, you, you know, know what sad it? If, if, if that video mm-hmm. was documented, it could have caused something. Because you know what it is, a lot of times when we watch these so-called, um, like you know, watch the media or the news on TV, they show showing us always losing a battle. Like for instance, we're always losing, and that does something to the black cause. That does something to the black right. movement. But when you see incidents but like but that, where we stood up. Yeah, but let me tell you, up it is documented. Yeah, oh, no. I mean, you okay. know, you're
2: right.
0: We stood up. We stood up together. It is documented. Go to blackyouthproject. dot org. Black Youth One Hundred. look it up right now? Hold on. Is said
1: blackyouth.org dot org. Black Hold Youth. Look it up right now. No, no, no.
0: No, just go on Google and look up Black Youth
1: Project. Look up Black Youth Project One Hundred. Project, okay. Black Project 100. Yeah, because yeah, I love to watch. Because, you know, I'm tired of seeing black people get beaten up. Every time we watch anything on TV, it's always some black people getting violated, beaten up, the police always winning. It's nice to see that the black movement finally went for once. Because, you know, it really helps. It helps a lot when you see that. It really does. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. And that's why, you know, I love that group, because it was the young people that were right there and jumping in and, you know, and the rest of us trying to figure out what the hell is happening. What was it called again? Trying to figure out where all these people came from. Um, Blackyouthproject.org. I think that's the website. But if you do a Google, it'll show you, you know, and, you know, subscribe to their YouTube channel. And that's the whole thing. That particular group is um, directed by Dr. Charlene Carruthers. And let me tell you what they did here in Chicago. So, Every month, um, the Chicago Police Department has a meeting, you know, discussing different issues or what have you, and there was a young woman by the name of Rakia Boyd who was killed by a police officer here in Chicago. He just randomly shot into a crowd and he killed her. So every month, Black Lives Matter Chicago, Black Youth Project, um, and a number of other Groups, they go there. And what happened at this one particular meeting,
2: um,
0: they allowed um, somebody from Black Youth Project to speak. And then the person, you know, gave their talk, the young person gave their talk, and then one of the unelected board members got up to talk. And basically, Charlene and her group, they all stood up and left, and it was 200 of them. They left together. Wow. And the only thing you saw were crickets and tumbleweeds going through that, you know, particular office space or, you know, that space there. But that is what happened, and that is what is happening, and they don't
1: report this. My sister, this um, news. I can't find it. The mm-hmm. only thing I'm finding is something that says BlackYouthProject.com. i go into it, but it seems like something that okay. says Black Youth Project. Does it say Florida State Fraternity? It says something in Florida State Fraternity suspended for slavery-themed hazing accusations. Would that be it right there?
0: Hold on a second. Black Youth, whoops, not you, Youth Project, Black Youth Project 100. Um, I think this is it. Yeah, because it
1: says culture, it says politics.
0: Yeah, I'm pulling it up now. You know, oh, I don't really have to do because it's like, you know, also you can find them on, no, byp100.org.
1: Oh, B-Y-P. oh byp100.org. B-Y-P-100. Okay, I got you
3: byp100.org, byp,
1: mhm, e100.org. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got or. it. Thank you.
0: And no problem, honey. And they have chapters going all, you know, coming up all around the country. And they just created a policy platform. So you know, you go to that page, you read it thoroughly, you share that information with people. And again, that's why we have this show. And you know, when I when you know we're done talking about this, I'm gonna give a few more facts about the news. <laughs> and yeah. um, but the thing is, is that it's important, and it's a lot of you know solidarity, a lot of different groups that are coming up. And, I mean, you know, because, I mean, when with you talking today, you're a young man. I get excited. Now, are you under
1: 35? Yeah, I'm 32. I'm old.
0: Okay, cool. No, you can join BYP because they have a cutoff age of 35. So, you know, okay. I'm just trying to, you know, make sure that you know so you won't be discouraged and like, oh, they're youth. No, they're taking people up to the age of 35, so I'm a little bit too old. I'm 35 plus.
1: So, you know, so... <laughs> um, but what I do
0: is I support them, you know. Do you
1: think, um, the most- do you think this generation is more fearless than the last generation? Because a lot of people, are, I'm hearing that a lot, that this generation is more fearless. Because, like, for instance, my mom's generation, it was almost like, mm-hmm. don't get the white man upset. Don't do that. You're going to make them upset. Like, you know, it's almost like we wanted to right. appease them. This generation, like, they just right. don't care. <laughs> Just don't
0: care. Exactly, exactly, and, and, and that's the whole thing, and that's why I got that book, and I'm gonna read this. And it's called it's called The Cultural Matrix: Understanding Black Youth by Orlando Patterson. And that was one of the books that I that I said that's in my reading list that I just bought. But let me tell you, honey, when I was on that charter bus with those babies, they gave me life. You hear me? Because it's like yeah. I already. You know, I'm I'm already one of those people. I don't fear very much, and I don't scare either, okay?
2: And and that's
0: one of the reasons why people get pissed off at me about what I post on my page and especially what I talk about on this show. And it's just interesting because I've had people, you know, threaten to sue me, and I'm like, that's fine. I have a lawyer on retainer. You want his number? I don't give Mm. a shit. Fuck you and fuck what you're talking about.
2: You know, sue me.
0: You know, but the thing is, is that there are a lot of people out here that are afraid, and like I say, fear is an industry. You know, it costs. You know, every other damn commercial is about some old white person falling down and can't get up or can't get up the stairs or somebody's trying to break into their home. You know Mm -hmm. what
2: I mean? It's
0: like you get to looking at this. But, um, you know, uh, basically with the BYP program there, you go and you'll see that video because it was the young people taping it, and it was the young people standing in solidarity and sitting and refusing to wow. let them take that young man anywhere. That's beautiful. Now, you know,
1: you know, you, I'm, surprised is, you know police, I mean, I'm surprised the police. I'm surprised the police back down because you rarely see police back down. That's what's shocking about because well, police usually try to make a point that we're never going to back down no matter what. Sometimes they purposely escalate the situation, but, you know. But look,
0: But, no, let me tell you, it went from six of us walking down the street to two, three hundred of us blocking them so that they could not move those cars. So the thing is, is that, you you know, some of us were sitting here trying to figure it out because we could not believe that they would do something like that, and we just had a Black Lives Matter conference. And I'm pretty sure they were surprised to see us grow from six to 200 plus. And so, I mean, we outnumbered them. And, again, sitting around the cars, you know, and the one sergeant that shot out the pepper spray, when well, he came down the street, he hit his brakes trying to pull a star and Hutch. You know how they make their cars swivel and shit? Yeah. Change? And he almost he almost hit that concrete embankment. And had he hit that, we would have laughed. He really would. He probably would have started shooting at us then. But you know, wow. just the whole situation.
2: But you know, you know what I'm so hearing like we about my admitted.
1: sister? My sister, yes, let me be a devil's advocate. You know what I'm hearing mm-hmm. a lot, though? I'm hearing that the the dominant society want the black people to be revolutionary. They want them to be upset. They want them not to be able to take it no more because in this, it could cause a race war, which would still feed into their agenda. They want that chaos because I noticed that mm-hmm. even like Fox News and all of them, they're pushing this whole black Power thing, and like they're trying to get white people upset, so they could kind of come back at us with their, you know, like in an unsettling way where it could cause, like I said, a race war. It's almost like they're pushing for this race war. I feel like we're we're kind of helping their agenda. Because you know what I'm saying to you? Like like, it's, like, 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 one part of it is, is good because black people are rising. We're not fearful. We we're all about this black revolutionary, black consciousness. But then I feel like maybe it's their plan for us to get upset. So this way we start fighting back. And then this way the white, the so-called, like you said, the so-called white poor folks start fighting with us. And this way you have an uprising in this country and then they could pass martial law. You get what I'm saying to you? I've been hearing a lot about that.
0: Right. And the thing is, is that, you know, I I agree with you to a point, you know, with with what you're saying there, because, you know, white people have been saying for decades that there is going to be a a race war. And if you go back and you look at the history, yeah, if you go back and you look up history, and look up race wars. I mean, it'll bring up a Wikipedia page, which kind of documents some of that. And, you know, again, I tell people to scroll to the bottom of the page of Wikipedia, and you get the sources, and you can read it from there. But, yes, that is what happened. I mean, even when I was talking about Wilmington and, the you know, the insurrection there, that was a race war. What happened in Tulsa was a race war. What happened in um Rosewood race war. So, I mean, the thing is, is that this happens you know, and it's been continuing to happen. I mean look at what happened in um Philadelphia when, you know, they firebombed those people. You know, oh, yeah, and, and yeah. look at what Right. So I mean, you know, it continues to happen. But yes, no, there is going to be, you know, what 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 do they call it? They call it a cultural revolution. And that is what is happening right now. And then when you get pundits from Fox News and, again, David Duke and his ilk and, you know, a number of these, you know, white supremacists, you know, the thing is is that that is what they want because then they will be able to openly, you know, declare war in our communities and walk down the street and and start killing, you know, black people because, I mean, look at what's been happening the past few years. You've white-armed white militias walking through black communities with their weapons out. Now, you know, at one point in time, and I talked about this, it was a white militia group that had a black person marching with them with his semi-automatic. Guess who was the one that went to jail? The white people went home, but the black guy went to jail, even though he was legally able to carry his weapon. So, I mean, you have all of these double standards. And, you know, down in Dallas, Texas, you have the Huey Newton Gun Club. You know, so, I mean, you know, and when they marched, white people were shaking in their boots, you know, down in Ferguson. You had the, um, I think they're called the Oath Keepers, and you yeah, had the Oath Keepers, and they were patrolling, and they wanted to arm, or one, one spokesperson wanted to arm some of the blacks in Ferguson to march alongside with them, and then that's when they started getting nervous, and so it ended up splitting into two different groups. And so, you know, you have a lot of these things happening, you know, because the way that I see it is if we're really going to get out here and start demanding change, there are some of these militia groups that they may be racist in their own way, but did they you hear, do believe that. Did,
2: did
1: ahead, you hear honey. about the thing that yeah, happened down in Ferguson? Like some of the um, police officers, um, um, like off-duty cops were out there shooting black people. Do you believe that? Like, um, I've I heard a rumor yes, going because, around saying during Ferguson that off-duty cops, fight, like, five off-duty cops basically were doing a yeah. shooting. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, exactly, wow. because the thing is, even with the shooting and then a couple of um, the firebombs that went through, you know, the Molotov cocktails or whatever they call them. But, yeah, some of those were cops. And then some of those were white anarchists that came from other areas. And so a lot of the people in Ferguson in particular, you know, some of the young men that are called gangbangers or what have you, they protected the businesses in the neighborhoods. They were telling them, you can go and you can do whatever you want to do over here, but we're not tearing up these businesses. We're not burning down our neighborhood. So they were able to come together to protect their own because the residents of Ferguson were not the ones burning up the quick trip and all of those things. That was not them. You know, they had people coming from other cities down there. You had, you know, some some black people coming down there creating issues. You had a lot of white folks coming down there creating issues. And so, you know, a lot of this gets lost and the message gets lost in rhetoric. And this is why we do shows like this because it's like, look, there is more to this story. You wouldn't believe the number of white people that have emailed me or, or I talk with on, you know, um on a consistent basis. And they were saying that they never knew a lot of the things that happened in this country happened. And you know, even when I started wow. on my show, they were they were Because they don't teach out in
1: the school. schools, that's what it is. They shelter exactly, these white exactly. kids. They don't teach them in the schools at all.
0: Exactly. But see this is the thing. Not only do they shelter the white kids, they shelter the black ones. And some of the white people at first they were skeptical of some of the things that I you know, that I would discuss. And I always tell people, fact check me, Google me. And they're able to look it up, and they were absolutely freaking amazed that, you know, of, of a lot of the things that they didn't know. A young man by the name of Red Ninja called in, and he was talking about, you know, when he went to college, he went to an HBCU, how he had to pay for classes to tell him about this stuff. And, you know, wow. with me, I'm just, I'm just reading these books, and, you know, when I go to these conferences, you know, I meet academics and get information from them. I join different groups in, you know on Facebook and other places and follow certain people on Twitter so that I can get their reading lists and see what they're reading about or if they're having a really interesting conversation. Sometimes I'll inbox them and they'll tell me a few books to go and read. See, we do, I mean, it's like this. There is no money in this. I don't make money from this. Not at mm-hmm. all, but the thing is, is that I get this information out there. I'm hoping that it helps somebody. I hope that it encourages somebody, empower them, and, you know, like you were saying earlier about these young, you know, black kids and, you know, the young Latino ones, too, because they are no joke. They are out there with us,
2: trust me.
1: Mm-hmm. And well, um, You know you what, know, I, think, I think you should stress mm-hmm. the fact that Hispanics, a lot of them, unfortunately, don't like us, let's be honest, because of how society have divided us over the decades, like because I know a lot of Latinos, they right now they would be ju- they will just be upset the fact that you're putting them together with the black cause like the black movement themselves, because they look at their movement completely different from blacks because they don't consider themselves a part of you know us of course they think they're some of them a lot of them think they're superior than us because of the shade of their complexion you know they're, because they're lighter than us of course they have different features well, in us I mean, too so. Okay. All right, so
0: now let's put this in context. Of course, you're going to have some like that. You know, you have some light skinned black black people that. Let's keep it real. There's a lot of Latinos like this.
1: A lot of them. Well,
0: okay, see, this is the thing. All right, you know, like I was getting ready to say, you have some light skinned blacks that think they're better than dark skinned blacks. But in regards to the Latinos, you know, the thing is, is, again, they don't, some of them do not know their history or understand it because the only difference between a Haitian a Dominican, a Mexican, and a black American, only difference is a slave ship stop, a port stop. That is the only difference between us. If you go back and you look at a lot of the Mexican history and the Puerto Rican history, there's a lot of African roots there. As a matter of fact, over on PBS, uh, there are a couple of documentaries, and it's talking about the black grandmother that Latinos don't talk about. You know, you go back over there, like Celia Coons and all of them, you go back and read that history. A lot of them do not know about their black origins and, and, you know, how they're tied to us. And, again, it goes back to what I was saying about the hierarchy of whiteness. So what they do, what white people do, the powers that be, the WASP, is that they will pull people into that, you know, then, like, some Asians, how they, they, they try to portray Asians as the model minority, which is racist on its face, and there's a lot of Asians that reject that, but they're pulled into that bin of whiteness, and so are certain Latinos being pulled into that, and, you know, that's, you know, what they don't seem to understand is that it's a ploy. It's a ploy to create division. But, you know, again, you know, you had people that stood with the Black Panthers. There was a young group here in Chicago called the Young Lords, and then they had another group of the Young Lords in New York, Geraldo Rivera, was their lawyer in New York. And the thing is, is that the Young Lords stood in solidarity with the Black Panthers. They they created the Young Lords so that they can address issues of justice or injustice in the Latino, Chicano, Hispanic community. So not a lot of them buy, buy into this white supremacy. And so we kind of have oh. to deal with that, which is why I'm putting this in context. If you go over to DePaul University's website and you do a search on the Young Lords, you will find a lot of their periodicals, a lot of their magazines, and a lot of their history there. And these were, in you know, a lot of young people, Latino people that stood with us. If you go out and you look up Asians for Black Lives or, you know, Yellow Peril, black power, there were a lot of them that stood with us. They understand how this white supremacy works. And so, again, you have, you have your people, just like you got a lot of people in the black community that are saying or calling, you know, these grassroots, you know, organizations and activists, they're calling them troublemakers because they're upsetting and agitating the white folks. You're going to have people like that in all of these particular cultures and all of these different circles. But at the end of the day, I have to give these young people credit. I never thought I would see the day that they're standing up, and that's why I'm telling some of these old fogies to shut up and sit down and let these young people lead. We are here to support them. So, you know, it's like I rarely give talk or anything like that because I don't like to do them, and especially because the majority of the people who want me to come and talk to them are old white people. And I'm like, why can't you just pick up a damn book? Because the thing is that I know that I'm going to tell them something that ten other black people told them. If you didn't believe those other ten people, why the hell do I believe you're going to believe me? You know what yeah. so My whole thing is, so I gave a talk most recently, and they gave me, you know, an honorarium of a few hundred dollars or whatever, and I had them donate that to Black Youth Project. And anything that I do, you know, I have them give the money to charities of my – they're not a charity, but to organizations or charities of my choice because I had some money go to the food depository. And one of the reasons why I do that is because you have some people out here, particularly some wealthy white people, who feel as though if they supported you and had you come out to talk and gave you some money, that you're supposed to fall in line with their agenda. So this way, I take that power away. Yeah, okay, you got me to come out the house and talk to you. But at the end of the day, I still don't want your blood money. Fuck that. No.
2: That's
0: true. You know, so... I mean, it it's just the whole thing is interesting. I'm mean, gonna have to do a New Deal part four because of y'all today. But that's all right. This is, Sorry about that. This a great. Uh, it's it's okay. I mean it was it's a great conversation. And it kinda of plays into, you know, the New Deal and and, yeah. you know, what's happening now with them trying to change some of the policies and create some of these programs that are specifically, you know, aiming at you know, um, minorities. And so, you know, you have that My Brother's Keeper program I hear that Obama, you know, put into place. And, you know, the community is split on that. You know, and then in addition to black men, they've included Latino men. And one of the issues is what about young black and Latino women? Because the thing is, is that black women and girls, are being incarcerated at the same rate as black men and boys, if not more. Oh, I
1: didn't know that. So, I didn't you, know that.
2: Seriously. Yeah, wow.
0: yeah. And so, you know, that's why you know we're Because what about I hear,
1: vicious. what I hear, I mm-hmm. hear black women doing very well. I hear black women have the highest college enrollment rate out of any other ethnicity. I just hear a lot of positive mm-hmm. about black women, like they're doing good in college. They have a high level of going to graduate school, like I would never right. think otherwise. Like, you know, I just hear I just like I said, hear positive things I about black women all the time.
0: Right, but let me tell you, okay, because then this is why I always put things in context. And I know people think that I'm arguing with them when I'm putting it in context, and I'm not arguing against you. I'm arguing your point, but I'm trying to create a broader, a bigger picture here. Now, when you hear about, you know, black women being the most educated group in this country and being enrolled in graduate schools, blah, 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 that all of that is correct, except the net worth of a black woman is really just a dollar. You know, if you go and you look at, you know, the statistics, but what is happening is you have these double standards. So let's say we have a panel, especially after, you know, everything took place in Baltimore and Ferguson, and, you know, you had all these town hall discussions happening all over the Internet. What is interesting is you'll see a panel. Let's say it had, you know, three black men, two black women, and somebody that was Latino. All right, so the black men, oh, this is an ex-police officer, and he's a community activist. The other black guy, oh, he's a rapper, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll see these black women, oh, well, she has a Ph.D. from here. She has an Ed.D. here. This one has her J.D. from, you know, Harvard Law or Yale Law. The thing is, is that we are held to a higher standard. Black women are held to a higher standard in every basically scenario. And you know, and it's it's just it's absolutely amazing. Um, if you go and you start looking at some of these things, even with some of them being highly educated, if you go out and you do some research, especially on some of these black professors, these women professors, um, a lot of these adjunct professors are living on food stamps. And public aid because the universities are not paying them. They are making below poverty line or at poverty line types of stuff. Yeah, I was
1: watching that. I was watching the documentary, and that you're 100 percent right. They showed this. I was watching this one lady. She had a PhD, and the money she was making mm-hmm. was like McDonald's money. Literally, McDonald's money with a right. PhD, which is mind boggling. That's just mind boggling. Exactly. Even like. It's just crazy. No, you're right. I, I saw that whole documentary, and it's because a lot of these colleges they are just so profit driven that because a lot right. of these, a lot of these universities, a lot of people don't realize they don't want to hire any tenure um, um, college professor anymore because the, the the tenure professors they're so expensive that they just try to keep right. that tenure level low. So whatever teachers that come in, they're per diem or they're like a part time teachers, which don't get no benefits, and they pretty much are being exploited by the universities. You see what I'm saying to you?
0: Right, exactly. But see, that's the thing. You know, in academia, it's called publish or perish, and so you know their focus is not necessarily to teach these children. Their focus is to get published because the publishing brings in money for the for the institution. And and that is what they are trying to do, bring in money. So these children are not necessarily being educated fully. And then some of no, them are teachers, this is what, and this is what they're pushing out to these schools. And that's why the public education system is in trouble. And oh, that's it's a, a, a big trouble. Of the Matter of fact, also has the, to deal. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the New York Times, I was reading the New York Times last year and had a whole documentation of all these employees. We're talking about major employees, IBM, Google, all these Mm -hmm. big top companies, and they're complaining about the amount of – they're basically complaining about the kids coming out of college. You're saying these kids don't have any critical thinking skills. They look in their – Like, there's so many grammatical errors. They don't know where to put the punctuation, period. Like, a lot of these employees are complaining and saying, we don't know what these kids are learning in these universities because they're not learning anything. Exactly. These kids are coming out, and and they're dumb. The the employees are making these things, you know, the employers. And
0: see, exactly. And see, but that's the thing. That goes back to what I was saying earlier with, you know, when you were talking about the high school. Same thing happened in college. They're teaching these children the test. These kids memorize enough to pass the test. They are not necessarily learning the material. They're not learning, they're memorizing. And there's a big difference, you know, between memorizing and learning. And that's correct. They are not being taught critical thinking skills. They're not being encouraged to think outside the box, like I said earlier. And this is happening across the board across this country. This is happening in a bunch of other places as well. And so, you know, like I said, I'm not arguing with you. I'm kind of arguing your point, but I just have to put it in context and perspective because sometimes, you know, we get lost in the details, you know, the nuggets, you know, so it's like, you know, we have to kind of pull it all back together. But um, yeah, you know, I've had college, you know, some, some of these academics that got upset when they found out you know, the type of money that I was making in computers. Now, this is the thing. When I went to college, you know, my major was electrical engineering. So anything, you know, dealing with computers or electronics and all of that, I know how to do that stuff. I've been fixing VCRs and TVs and radios since I was like 11 or 12, you know. And um, even though I don't screw around with some of the stuff they have out here now, but um, other things, yeah, but when, you know, they look up, you know, a job description or a job title, and you can go out there and look it up, and they would see how much money some of us were being paid, and especially some of us that have no letters behind their name. And what you said earlier, um, which I found interesting um is basically I, I find college, the way that it's set up in this country, I find it as extortion. You know, and then you come out of college and you still don't yes. know shit. And and, that's, and that is what's happening. And so that's matter why, fact, you know, I definitely... Matter fact,
1: they, said, they said most of these kids that did studies on it, they said most of these kids, when they finished their four-year school, because I don't know if a lot of people, I don't know, realize... 80% of these kids who finish college are not going to work in their field of study. So imagine you going to school for four exactly. years to be a computer engineer, computer electrician, or whatever, and you don't work in that field. I mm-hmm. guess what they said? They said within two years of you not working in that profession, because your brain is like a muscle. If you don't work it out, guess what? You lose it. They said within two exactly. years, if these kids don't get into that field, they only grasp about 20% of the information they learn for six years in college. Because if you're not getting into that field of study to keep refreshing your your memory, your brain, because your brain is a muscle, if you do not keep refreshing, you don't use it, you lose it after a while. So studies have shown after two three years of these kids not working in their field of study, they only grasp less than twenty percent of the information, eighty percent of their information they learn in four year five year school they lose it they lose it, and it's it's crazy exactly. so basically you're you're, you're paying exactly. all this money you paid all this money to lose the majority of the information you learn because you're not practicing it on a regular basis it's crazy it, though. And you're I'm right sure. it, 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 it it is extortion it is. Ext-
0: yeah, exactly, and that's why I'm sitting here, and I definitely 100% agree with you on that. Because one of the problems I had when I went off to college is you're making me learn all this bullshit I don't care about. You know, let me loose in the lab, let us play with our electronic stuff, and you all go away. You see, exactly, you know, and that's you know. But see, that's one of the benefits of trade school. You learn what you're going to learn. And I'm one of those people, I feel that everybody should have a trade. And then, you know, after that, if you go on to pursue a higher education, then so be it. That's fine. But, you know, you know, you keep hearing all of this, you know, bullshit about there not being enough um, people in the United States that can fill all of these jobs. People aren't trained. They're not skilled enough. They're not educated enough. And that's a lie. Because what's happening, you know, and I've talked about this a little bit last week when I was talking about NAFTA and CAFTA and TPP and all of that, What's happening is these companies are able to get cheaper labor in these, you know, poor countries like That's Mexico, what it's all about. like That's India, about. like India and like China. And what's going to happen with the TPP is it's going to force us to compete with people making 50 cents an hour. And this is why yeah. you see them trying to destroy the the unions. And so we start talking to people and looking at things from this particular perspective. <laughs> And it's extremely important, you know, but the thing is is that the dumbing down of America has been they going don't. on for decades.
2: And they my, don't want people sister, to think for themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. My sister, I, I've seen a documentary on China, and I was shocked to see the abuse that these so-called corporate yep. um, companies are, like how they're exploiting these people in China. Like I've seen this one Asian dude true story this asian dude got accepted at the top university in beijing china like you know asian people are like when it comes to studying these people study anywhere from 12 to 15 hours in one day because the average american studies five six hours a week five six hours a week these asian people study 15 hours in one day so this asian kid got accepted at the top university in china right so, so, so uh-huh. one day he could work for a American company, like you know, like a big corporate top company. Like usually, it's 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 in like like engineering, something to do with technology. So he gets in. Now, guess what the company requires him to do? He's required Ooh. to give overtime to the company every day, and not get paid for it. That's part of the program over there. So these people, imagine you're going to school, studying 15 hours a day. You're busting your ass. You finally get this great job, and now the job is exploiting you even more by telling you, yeah, out of the eight hours, out of the um, twelve hours you work for us, you only get to get paid six hours of it. The other six hours you have to get for free. And this is what goes on in China and a lot of these so-called foreign countries. And the money they get paid, I was shocked. Some of these guys are getting paid three, four, five dollars an hour. Like an American person can never compete with that. You can never compete with a guy with a master's degree in engineering who goes to a top university, is willing to work for seven, eight dollars an hour, plus work for six hours for free, <laughs> and no benefits. How can an American person right. compete with that? You can't.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, and and that's my point. We cannot compete with that. And another thing that needs to be addressed, like earlier when I was talking about what happened with the mortgage bubble and how, you know, these people were able to sell these, you know, worthless pieces of paper and hedge fund managers didn't go to jail, but we lost a lot of wealth in our communities. Um, even with situations like that, what's happened? You know, like you're talking about, you know, what's going on in China. Um, you know, that's
2: happening in the. United-